the countdown is coming. We are, oh, I lost track. Monday is the last full day on the Kickstarter for those of you watching this in real time. And real time, we are so excited because we've got we've got some special goodies coming up over the weekend, which you can watch on my channels and Kiltz's channels to to find out about. But we recognize we recognize that maybe we haven't convinced enough of you yet. Actually, we we do we need some more gold. Um, how? utterly cool this project is that we're working on and studying the internets we recognize that ah we have not been using our prime selling point which is we're writing a fairy story so we we tonight we want to sort of dig down deep into the mythology of what fairy stories are why we're doing fairy stories where we are going with fairy stories why we call what we're doing a fairy story and yes, there will be a bit of Tolkien, and yes, there will be a bit of Pratchett, and we're going to take a sample story that maybe some of you are paying attention to right now because it's it's out there in the, in the interwebs being talked about. We promise to take you places you didn't expect. Welcome to the Mosaic Arc. to tell them what we're actually doing i mean we keep we I, I think i think probably we're too modest yeah yeah i don't know Do we start bragging without holding back uh is that what we need possibly to do? possibly <laughs> i'm thinking i mean so i i i, I was one it was funny because i was thinking have we really not told them this yet we're writing a fairy story guys and and so mm -hmm. i looked back through we've been you know telling you guys about the Kickstarter for a month now because we started with the letters that Edmund Spencer wrote to promote his story and we've done some on the backstory that the back the behind the scenes that you can get from our website mm -hmm. I mean seriously guys we know we know absolutely everybody who watches the Mosaic Arc is thirsty for knowledge and we are here to bring it to you <laughs> um, we've put up lots and lots of reading lists, study guides, um, links to things that Professor Fulton Brown, me, has been doing for decades in thinking about storytelling and exegesis and imagery and Christian mythology and stuff. This, I, I, you know, when we say we're in an arc, we're floating on an ocean. 
and mm. just wanting to to share all of that with you all and give you some sense of the I mean the tradition that we should all be drinking from like from a fire hose it's it's interesting I mean I have this I mean, the, the, if, if you've been watching me on Twitter the past if a week or so, <laughs> trying to get people's attention with, yes, Christianity is true, and it's the only truth. And if any truth that's out there that, you know, seems to resonate with Christianity is because Christ is the truth. I mean, really, guys, we mean it. We, we really, really, really mean it. Mm-hmm. But these are truths that are also come folded in uh, stories and symbolism and centuries and centuries and centuries of participation in liturgy and prayer and art. Mm-hmm. And I was having a meditation. We had a wonderful procession. It was indoors because it was raining um, for the Sunday feast of Corpus Christi. Corpus Christi in the Latin churches is, is on Thursday after Trinity Sunday. But because pra- people's church going now is, is tends to be more weekly, we have these extraordinary observances. And on Sunday at St. John Cantius, we had the feast, the, the the procession for Corpus Christi, and we did it indoors because we wouldn't get rained on if we go outside. Um, and I was, there was therefore, it was a very crowded church and I couldn't, I was sitting in a line, so I couldn't actually see the altar from where I was sitting. I was like three rows down, but it was, I was behind a pillar. And on the pillar was the, life-size crucifix, very realistic life-size crucifix that we have in, in St. John Cantius. And I was thinking about that representation as this this historical moment, right? When, when we're in the liturgy, we're always remembering the full sort of layers of symbolism that go into the sacrifice, both the remembrance of the, the, the Holy Thursday, the reenactment of the crucifixion and the promise of life that we or participating in, 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 in communion. And I, I, I was thinking, and let's see if I can give you the, the full force of this thought that struck me. It's like, we've been doing this for al- almost 2000 years. Mm. Now I'm going to cry. What? I, and you could say, okay, we're just repeating it over and over and over again for 2000 years, mm. 2000 years. What an incredible rupture into time that it has hmm. reverberated for 2000 years that that's quite an event hmm. yeah it is it is the uh i mean it defines our time doesn't it as we've said as we've said before it's it time is is before christ in anno domini year of our lord and that uh repetition that liturgical repetition is the is the the living expression of that i mean we we have been literally living in year of our lord at <laughs> times 2000 it's magnificent 2023 and and mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether the calendar was only calculated a certain amount of time and say that there was i think you shared this maybe i saw it i saw it in telegram neil degrasse tyson tyson degrasse however you say his name saying why he mm-hmm. says AD because the calendar is actually Christian and he says the Gregorian calendar was calculated in, in the 16th century and it's, you know, the most accurate calendar we have. But the point being that the numbering mm-hmm. is from the incarnation and, uh, you know, the, they're all of these sort of, these are not just symbols, they're realities of our historical experience and there are anchors for what it means to be alive, who we are 
not just as Christians, right, but as human beings. Mm -hmm. And that 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 event saying the creator of everything to everything, right? Just give your mind about everything entered into his creature in a particular moment in time. And you say, well, why then? It's like, well, because when he did it, it was when he did it. <laughs> because if it's going yeah. to be an entry into time, it's going to affect time. It's going to, and, and so I, I, I had this meditation a while ago saying it's like the cross is like this giant pin that just shoots <laughs> into the world, into reality, into time. And it, it, it's like you had this, this, you know, chaotic, waving, unformed, you know, chaos does not exist before the creation. It's, it, it's part of the creation or is it, but the, 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 the incarnation pins time and therefore creates time. And, and likewise, God creates everything. That's just true. And so to claim that, oh, we have different truths or we have different realities or something. No, we don't. There's reality <laughs> and it's, it's the mm -hmm. creature of God. There you go. So I, you know, I've been trying to say this on Twitter mm -hmm. in, in ways that get people's attention so that they will give us gold <laughs> for our Kickstarter to tell our fairy story, which is in fact this story because there's only one, but mm -hmm. saying that in modernity, we've lost so much of a sense of, I mean, you say that enchantment, that instoryment that the enchantment is the insongment, right? The chanting, the insongment. We're, we've lost so much of our insongment that people think there can be, you know, multiple realities. Oh, yes, your truth, my truth. And no, we are trying to show you this truth for, through a fairy story. And those fairy stories are therefore what's most true. And, and, and I get that this blows people's minds. Oh, uh, I just, you, you triggered a memory, you know, I've, 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 I heard a lot, <laughs> a lot of cradle Catholics, uh, Orthodox included, that have been repeating this phrase, oh, you know, everyone has their own truth. Uh, in the last few years, it always struck me as a very odd thing that even, it, it, you know, this, this kind of, uh, Treating time as a subjective experience instead of an objective reality has become a part of Catholic thinking. And I don't think that, uh, I mean, the particular people that were saying this at the time really understand how profound it is that they've rejected the concept of an, of ad, an objective truth, but truth as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, this, you know, this kind of thing is happening here more and more, and I'm wondering whether or not it's not because we're becoming more fused to the Asiatic mentality, which of course doesn't have the BCAD distinction as much as the the Mediterranean West. But, uh, you know, the more we're getting pulled away from that pin, that crucifix, the more... Uh, you know, unstable everyone is becoming. So, uh, you know, you, you, you talk about enchanted, but the, the cultures which, uh, held onto the crucifix had this kind of magical quality about them that has started to 
run away. Um, they're you know. Well, you've modernity you've bleached modernity bleaches people really quickly. Okay, uh, so we can go two different directions. Yes, the modernity we've talked to them. Yeah. That I've also been playing with that on the Twitter. It's like the whiteness. It's like white supremacy yes. and the white. You know, it's like it's it's the bleaching out of all culture as as we've talked about. But so there's one there's yeah. on the one side that bleaching out of all culture so that no stories have reality. Um, and then I, I think you've also you've also we've tried to been trying to point people here to this concept that you're describing of maybe not the the orient it's funny that we can't say oriental is a positive because oorians is actually the rising sun right it's the light it's the, the orient is where oriental. the light comes from the occident that's the darkness right we live in the occident well you don't but <laughs> <laughs> i'm oriental, you're oriental baby. baby you're out there <laughs> with the rising sun over the over the the great pacific right um that yeah. that you guys out there in the Orient it have that dream world too, right? That dream time yeah. that is unanchored in I mean history or linearity, we we often say that and saying, Well, story is the way we have meaning and you know, we look in patterns and we try to say this means that because of the way these analogies play out. But but if if there's no anchor story, the analogies are like madness right it's like it's like anything yes. could connect to anything else and it means nothing it's a psychedelic horror yes yes definitely um anything can mean anything uh there's no i mean uh it's a kind of um mythological alphabet people are not using the same lettering and so they're they're saying whatever they want and this can mean whatever we want it to mean uh just it just just it destroys storytelling because people don't have any concept of truth when they're telling the story so um i mean it's been quite uh it, it's a very strange thing you know to be an oriental i don't know why you guys are allergic to this term i mean i'm quite comfortable with it we are oriental the oriental I mean, institute in chicago changed its name so it's not the oriental institute anymore it's quite racist <laughs> <laughs> i mean like why our entire church is called oriental orthodox churches so i don't know why they have a problem with that maybe we don't have a problem with it we don't have a problem with being oriented. Well, I could go down the rabbit um, hole and explain this, but let's not. <laughs> okay, we won't go there. We won't go there. And also, I'm just shit stirring. I know, like everyone has their own like issues with things over in your, you know, <laughs> in the in the dark uh, in the dark side. Yeah. We over here in the Occident, yeah. where the sun sets yes, and the light goes out. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. The this very strange kind of idea that we have, I mean, sorry, my brain's going in two directions with this. We're talking about the ability for people to communicate truth in their art and truth in their, in their stories, their storytelling, this kind of idea of having a shared understanding of what truth is in order to even be able to give somebody a story. Uh, Australians take for granted that the 
the the tales that they've inherited from the old world are anchored in a uh, Christian time. They really do take it for granted because at the moment the national argument is to decolonize, you know, and embrace the indigenous or embrace this or whatever, you know, embrace the multicultural and not realizing that essentially what that means is to embrace non-time as we know it. Well, just non-time, it's not even as we know it. It's saying, yeah. I, think, I think what I'm realizing as we're talking right now is unless you have, unless you have something like you think of as linear time, there is no such thing as speech. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah, the tenses are just... And, but, and there's no, I mean, there is no such thing as stories because stories are meaningful only insofar as you tell them in time. It's like a song, music mm-hmm. happens in time. It, you know, it, it may yes. recur back and point back to things that re-reference things so that meaning arises out of that sense of mutual reference. But if, mm-hmm. if everything references to everything else, there is no meaning. It's, it's just like nothing references to anything. Yeah. There's no meaning. But if everything references to everything and there's, I mean, I, some, we've been talking a little bit about this and like the way the, you, the kids these days, um, don't have, I mean, they have, I've been witness to this and younger people that I know, they have a very interesting sense of humor because things are just funny to them. And when I, they show me stuff and I'm like, I don't even, I mean, there's no referent and they're like, oh no, it's not really a referent. Or maybe there is a referent. It's like nothing means anything if the references don't tie together and don't have any sort of, um, like not everything can mean everything else. And if it does, there's, it's just, it it really is chaos. I I don't see how our brains Mm. can function if we don't believe in stories. They can't. They can't. They can't. Um, uh, You know, I was reading Chesterton and he talked about that kind of mythological chaos Mm. that it, 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 it bred a kind of, um, mystical schizophrenia because you get in a kind of uh, hysterical mysticism where right. uh, you've got no uh, you've got no dogma to to anchor it and uh, it was interesting what he was saying you know um, very relevant to what we're doing in in the crafting of our fairy tale that people that are constantly trying to find connections between things that don't have a dogmatic anchor end up uh, essentially insane because you find connections with no uh with no truth right and then it's a never-ending experience of connecting things which uh, there's no end to it because there's no uh there's no prototype there's no pattern that you're working with so uh it kind of you know that has as he's explaining his perspective on the oriental uh mysticism that's um constantly challenging the the church and, and Western culture is that there's this kind of uh, amorphous mystical madness which is constantly flooding from the east and uh, it's story without purpose. Mm-hmm. So just it's a kind of frenzied attempt at a fairy tale but there's no beginning, middle and end because they're not uh, connecting it to anything so yeah it was interesting how that has influenced the culture here makes sense to me because we have a really uh difficult 
moment as a culture in Australia to define ourselves as, as Oriental or Occidental. We're not really sure. We have an identity crisis. And even the, the Mediterranean peoples that have come here are starting to become influenced by this concept of a subjective time, subjective truth, subjective storytelling, mm. that anything can be anything and you have to, you know, uh, accept everybody's truth. Well, Which, I so it's like one um, Orient and Occident don't mean anything whatsoever if there's no anchor. Yep, <laughs> you're literally spinning in circles, and yep. there is, I mean, there's not even a center and a periphery. Mm -hmm. There is, it's it's so interesting. It's like so. There's, I just thought of eight things. Um, one, there's a, a a sort of insight in cognitive psychology that came out in the '80s or so that all of our language is metaphorical. Um, mm -hmm. So it's Lake Alpha Johnson's book, Metaphors We Live By, which they're showing things that there is, all of our language is already metaphorical. There's no such thing as a literal because we're already embedding things in, oh, for example, language as container. We put ideas into words, for example, into mm -hmm. words is a metaphor of container. Um, but they mm -hmm. also realize that all of our metaphors are embodied because we have two primary experiences of being containers ourselves. We put stuff into ourselves, things come out of ourselves. Babies, if you're a woman. <laughs> um, and uh, we move in space, right? And we have a front and a back, right? So we, we move mm. forward and backward and sideways, but those are meaningful to us because we have front and back, right? And that without these anchors of being volumes that move in space, nothing would mean anything everything that we talk about has both of these container metaphors and these and these movement metaphors mm. and this is the most enlightening conversation we've had for me <laughs> like wow say so you can't think not just you you need stories for you know to model your consciousness or something like that that william james might mm. say in you know elements of psychology but that we premise meaning on the basis of stories that can only have meaning if you can anchor them in our experience of time and place history history mm. guess what people it's history <laughs> yeah mm. um so well stories are very important then eh <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think we've established that. I thought, I thought, no, it's like, I'll start with my pictures. I thought we were just going to you know, be looking at manuscripts and going, woo, cool. As Indiana Jones here Pretty. is with the bad guy from Last Crusade. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, but, you know, the, <laughs> the way everybody loves stories, right? And, and particularly, I mean, we know this from the movies. I mean, movies are magnificent storytelling in so many ways because the the linearity and the i mean you've got sound you've got movement of images and you've got you know sort mm -hmm. of therefore this this dynamic narration so you can make linear stories out of them but embedded in those stories is always the desire to discover story and obviously the indiana jones movies are mm -hmm. are, are doing this at least the early ones are, are doing this well and the the trope of Oh, you know, we have this book. Here we have it. We'll go to the book. We'll do the next picture. Go to the book. The book, right? Which has a fairy. It's usually a fairy story, right? There's some kind of legend or, you know, secret lore yes. that is embedded in this 
um, media substrate <laughs> of manuscript mm-hmm. that will then, you know, give the characters purpose in their adventure. So stories give us purpose. They give us, you know, quests and, th- and things like that. And everybody wants one. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you just remind me I watched Twilight not, not, not long ago. It was my... Uh, I've never watched. I've never seen pleasure. that. My guilty pleasure of watching the most ridiculously bad young adult romance with vampires. But they also had this uh, scene where one of the the main characters has to go to an Indian bookstore and get a book that has one of the ancient Indian legends in it, in order to figure out that her boyfriend is indeed a vampire. <laughs> so yes, the the um the necessity to plug into uh, myths and, and, and fairy tales from uh, different periods to find the hidden truths of our world. It was it was a big theme in that uh, in that story. Well, so I mean, Twilight's um, a good one to to, to choose one because a I've never seen it, so you can tell me about it. And b, <laughs> um, it works on the level. I do know it's probably about vampires. I think, um, and they sparkle. Is mm-hmm. that right? And one's named Edward, possibly. That we take pleasure from being able to connect ourselves to tropes and rec- and so that the you know most a, a good deal of storytelling is in that shock of recognition oh it's that story right and and you know mm. sort of the, the mystery feels fun for a bit but you do want to know which story which other stories it anchors to and therefore gives meaning to the story that you're in at this moment it's it's so interesting we cannot we can't do this we can say western or eastern storytelling we in the west in the occident in the christian are constantly looking for the place that we find ourselves in, in these stories, right? Here's, here's the mm-hmm. manuscript that Indiana, Dr. Jones is, is looking at. I mean, what's hilarious is in the movie, they're talking about it being the friar's manuscript and it's telling about the, the guy from the crusade who, you know, lived to a very old age and stuff. The prop makers for this manuscript were actually like, um, dedicated enough to their craft that even though the manuscript is only there for like a second and you can play you you know until you were able to do things like take screenshots off of youtube you weren't able to see it the text has nothing to do with any of that it's it's about <laughs> arthur and guinevere and and you know lancelot right you know it's it's and and, the, and i don't know whether the you know what they copied it off of to do the margin the marginal illuminations and stuff but you know it looks like manuscript, right? So it says, here we yes. are in this old story that has details that will give us clues to who we are in our present story. It's it's like everybody loves this. Yes. Yeah, they do. Well, Twilight, okay, so t- I can't believe I'm streaming about Twilight. You so brought it up. I'm playing is, with it. <laughs> I know. Just, you knew that. I funny. was going to go talk about um, Johnny Depp and Hunter Thompson. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, that's a good, I know that's good. We go there. Um, all right, so human girl travels to Seattle, small town around Seattle. It's really dark and cold and it rains all the time. Basically, meets a guy figures out he's a vampire because of the the Indian fairy story book that she finds at the Indian uh, the bookshop but um, that that particular story does the same thing um, in quite a few moments where the writer has clear like clearly deliberately inserted references um, cultural references that people can 
look at and think, oh, this is what we're looking at. So in the in the case of Twilight, it's Romeo and Juliet. So there's a scene where she's doing homework for her English class and she's reading uh, Iambic Pentameter, which was also really nice. <laughs> I thought, oh, great, they've put some, they've put some Iambic here in the in this uh vampire film but um it's it's it instantly connects this uh this romance to to shakespeare's they've done it in a few of the others the a few of the other twilight books as well so they're referring to the the merchant of venice um what are the other ones quite a few shakespeare mm. ones are uh, referenced in there as well so it connects the present with the past. Suddenly you have time, which, I mean, now that we're talking about it and now that I'm thinking about it, can only work if the stories are joined, if they're knit together somehow in a in a logical way. And so if, if for example, we do the, the modern approach where anything can mean anything and, you know, this term can mean this now because we've just redefined it, well, you can't knit those two things together because in one case you have a ro- vampire romance connected to Shakespearean Romeo and Juliet, but if these things can mean whatever you want them to mean, the references disappear. Right. It it it's a it's a it's obliterated. Um, and what that does to the to the mind, that's that's uh, an interesting thing to mm-hmm. think about. Like start to oblit uh, obliterate the references of of your fairy stories, change the meaning. Suddenly, the mind has nothing to attach to. Well, mm-hmm. yes, and we can an yes, and we can say that this is you know people are locally upset about oh you know they're destroying the references to this story or that story, but saying yes, you will go insane mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. cannot place yourself in reference to the other stories, and 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 if there is no, yeah. I mean as, as we've been saying, if, if if there's nothing to anchor you one to the other in the tropes, you're you cannot yeah. think. Yep. That's Australia. <laughs> it is though. Right. It is. We we have purposefully disconnected ourselves from the stories of the old world that brought us here in the first place. And we're deliberately and purposefully stopping people from looking at those stories because of this thing called diversity and multiculturalism and our stories as a nation have to be linked to the origin you know the origin myths of the civilization that started this place but because of this i mean i don't know would you call it an agenda it's sort of a it, the anti-fairy agenda the anti-fairy agenda that, <laughs> the anti-fairy agenda that uh says that it's it's redundant to look at the uh, uh, to look at the origin stories of your own culture. Uh, it's impolite. We have to abandon them. We have to look at other people's stories now, without being able to knit them to our mm-hmm. own. And so Australia has this, you know, I mean, bizarre cultural schizophrenia that everybody's apologising for being Western, but they don't know what Western means. You know, we've we've just had this conversation about what it means to be oriental and occidental they don't know what it means to be western they're not in the west they're in the they're in the orient um with no uh with no story links that would allow them to pick up something like twilight and say oh okay we're in romeo and juliet or we're referencing the merchant of venice what is that who wrote these stories where was he um 
the 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 references are all being broken it's like a tapestry that's being pulled apart thread by thread and then thrown all over mm. the place um that's how i feel here but the thing is the, it's not just the, the conversation the culture it, it's not just reference to the founding colonists or you know parent culture no it's, no no, it's no at all and and this is of course what yeah. chesterton is trying to show in everlasting man which i confess you're further along in reading than i am rereading so you may have more of this in your head right now but to say the christian story is true and is the truth is to say all of mm. these stories can be knit together they do make sense that there is a, a, a an overarching pattern to all of it that will you know result in you know the contemplation of god which is a beautiful thought <laughs> whereas yeah. what you're saying what's what's the anti fairy agenda it's it's chaos it's it's madness it's the mm -hmm. it, you know the inability to see anything true it's it's ugly yes. and 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 chaotic and and broken whereas the the christian yeah, I mean, the I, christian you know christian story is this is a meaningful existence that if you pay attention to these patterns will lift you up in contemplation and joy and praise of your creator yeah yep um yeah, that that uplifting experience. This, uh, I mean, that's going to transform somebody to you know, as you as you've described it, to enter fairy, to become enchanted is going to uplift you, which will transform somebody, and then it will transform a culture, and it's going to challenge the the anti fairy world because it's not going to look the same. It's not going to look the same. People are not going to sound the same and think in the same way if they have made these connections and they've um, uh, truthfully enchanted themselves, you know, in truth, not in this uh, chaotic, uh, you know, unanchored mysticism of uh of different uh storytelling where anything can be any anything can be anything mm -hmm. words mean these word containers can mean a million different things at any one point we're scrambling and arguing over the word containers instead of uh coming to an agreement over what they mean uh people are taking things out all the time pouring new things in there's no consensus so um, well, it's so my next my my next visual example was Hellboy, <laughs> which I haven't seen that's except good. that's a first no reason. except for to figure out. So, so I, I you know was heard of a reference recently to the fact that they had like in Indiana Jones they have a, a manuscript right and I'm like oh cool so I, you know was looking mm -hmm. looking it up and you know even in Hellboy which I think I need to watch they have a manuscript right which the the designers yeah. um, Heather Pollington worked on this with a uh she has a collaborator she, she said who it was um you know they take i was looking at it, it looks like some anglo-saxon famous anglo-saxon or pontificals and things like that to me but you know that they reference the antiquity of story by way of having this manuscript that the the roddy dow character is reading to the young hellboy i think even mm -hmm. in hell 
<laughs> structure of story. And I, when I understand about Hellboy, which I would like to, it's like, he is actually, he's, he, he's like covered in crosses and stuff like that. And the other scene that I saw, where he's mm -hmm. wearing rosaries and everything that he is actually a Christian character that, I mean, it's like, you guys, you're not going to get outside of the Christian story because it's the only one <laughs> because yeah. it's structuring this whole drama that we're living in of being creatures in a world in which interestingly we're given free will to make choices therefore our lives feel meaningful because we can make choices and story is the thing i mean one of the big things everybody talks about this like stories fairy stories and stuff can help train you in making choices because they give you models of bad choices but it's you know all stories are doing that history does that you read it for good mm -hmm. and bad examples so even in hell <laughs> <laughs> well, Hellboy is actually positive, but you, you, you're, you don't get out of this single story structure because it is the one that gives mm. us meaning. The, the opposite, and I didn't think of this until we were talking, is something like, so I've been on, one day we're going to have to do a full stream on all Johnny Depp movies because I'm watching all of them. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, the one he did about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and it's not a pleasant mm -hmm. movie to watch because like they just get trippier and trippier and trippier. And it's like, yeah, that's what it's like. It's like mm -hmm. you're in the true psychedelic, literally nothing, everything, can, things change from one moment to the next and they have zero logic. And the more your brain tries to make logic out of them, the harder it gets. And it's just lizard people and floods and who knows right yeah. that and and it, what's interesting this manuscript that they try to make for hellboy it's hellish in a way right because it's like sort of blue and green and weird stuff i it was hellish for me because i looked too close at the screenshot and realized it has no text it's like gibberish <laughs> mm. compared to indiana jones this one's actually gibberish the Laura it's not even Laura Mipsum. it's like three again. words repeated <laughs> over and over again in unseals right um <laughs> the beauty requires structure and 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 logic and pattern and stories mm. give us that insofar as they you know satisfy that desire for connections mm. well that that's what we were saying before in terms of like uh zuma generation and the the humor the zuma humor zuma humor i described it <laughs> during our our twitter crusade uh, it was, uh, you know, ADHD and low-dose hallucinogenics. I mean, it's it's like the the generation that have lost connection with all of their all of the stories that would pull them into the the one story. They lack the manuscript understanding of their own culture, so they've just kind of inherited this fear and loathing of the fear and loathing in Las Vegas experience of Western civilization, where it's like, and, and I really understand that because I, you know, I kind of started in there and got spat out the other end but um this uh no idea where to start with the attention no idea you know how to orientate this is why oriental is such a for me it's such a beautiful word an oriental you know in our understanding of oriental orthodox i mean we can say yeah we're eastern but also we're orientated we know where to look we have the cross we have the crucifix we're orientated in time so you know, you've got disorientated generation which have no um, fixed point for for their attention to start. So it's it's like a cultural ADHD mm -hmm. plus a load of hallucinogenics. I mean, that's not just uh, rhetoric, you know. 
they're vaping uh, low-dose hallucinogens in this kind of mode of thinking where there's no anchor. So it is very, very psychedelic. And then the references are all over the place and you think, where are you? <laughs> you know, you've got to, you've got to kind of uh, patiently understand that this is, this is the, the psychology of tribal people that don't have a connection to uh, a big um, foundational myth somehow that's how they think yes and i'm going to keep i'm going to keep derelativizing you the foundational myth yeah 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 the, the foundational myth you you zooming around yeah. zooming around there in dream time and you so ori i mean oriented mm. medieval maps were literally oriented east is at the top right because that's where paradise is so the orient is yeah. the east is the parrot is paradise it's like the 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 the, the place and the he, in the earthly world where you are most focused jerusalem's at the center and mm -hmm. and, and paradise is at the top um that i mean i'd say we we've we've talked about this in sort of the tribal drums what were you we talking about the tribal drums recently were we putting it oh the radio you, when you did your McClure oh yeah thing. yeah 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 the, mm. the the tribal drums right and that that it without the structure of history and the incarnation we are you know back in that terrifying world of the enemy's coming over the hill at any time. We have to be the tribe, I think, is the yeah. is the feeling. So the fairy stories are some way out of this. Yes, the manuscript. The manuscript that we need to uh, give us the clue. So I've been thinking. The realization. Yes, so I've been thinking about fairy stories my whole life because all of us have. Yeah. <laughs> we we grew up what we grow up with them, right? And it's like if you. I don't think I saw a lot of the Disney ones when I was growing up because you know what we didn't have video yet. I'm that old. Um, and they they didn't necessarily show on television, in repeat. I mean, it's interesting the things mm -hmm. that I did see in repeat a lot, like The Wizard of Oz, because that was on every like Thanksgiving, I think. Um, but otherwise. It was a, it, it was actually a long time before I saw a lot of the even the Disney, the famous Disney movies. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm I, my deep, deep um, fairy experience is let's say say this out loud and make sure. So right now what I'm showing is one of my drawings, but it's not mine. No, it is mine. I did do mm -hmm. it right when I was so 79. So I was 14. Um but it's copying my absolute favorite children's artist, um, Trina Shart Hyman. And we're, we're going to talk about, we, we've been thinking about Snow White, so we have my copy of, of her Snow White, mm -hmm. although this isn't my original one, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, I knew about her art because Cricket, this is a children's magazine, which I believe is still being published, but Cricket, it, its first I issue was in 1973. And... Um, Trina Shart-Hyman was the art director for Cricket. And Cricket was so-called because it had little insect characters that were its, its sort of mascots. And she did all of the marginal creatures, right? She did Cricket and she did 
there's ladybug and there was caterpillar and there's several others and 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 like they'd be there in the letter section and they'd sometimes be commenting on different stories in the in the um issue and there was an old cricket at the end and she also did like pictures for some of the covers and some of the stories in it and i just i adored her drawing style it it, it, it if if i mm. were not me and had actually drawing skills as opposed to just like copying skills i did i did draw this i didn't trace it <laughs> if, I, if i had her actual imagination as a as an artist that's what i really mm -hmm. always wanted to do was was draw like trina shard hyman did anyway I, I wanted that so much that one one time i wrote to her and i had kid privilege at that point so she wrote back to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was like my first true fangirling was writing to Trina Shard Hyman, and Amazing. I drew I drew a copy of one of her. I think the old cricket, right? I drew one of the crickets, and I wrote to her, and she wrote back to me, and she said, "Oh, you know, so thank you." It was a lovely, like hand lettered card, and thank you so much Aww. and stuff. And she she enclosed a little sketch of her daughter ice skating. I mean, it was truly just a sketch, right? It was like a little card, and she just like, drafted and stuff like that. So I say this isn't my original copy of this. I had copies of her books, which, when did this one come out? Snow White came out in 74, right? So I would have had this before I went off to college. My mother, when I was in college, packed up a box and put my favorite books, my absolute favorite books, including that card with that sketch in the box. Yeah. <sighs> and it went missing in the mail. So I lost my sketch by her and I've had to since then, I think I had a hardcover copy of this one and, and I had to buy new copies of, of, of the books. So, so yeah. So th this to me is, is, is what fairy stories should be illustrated like, and they are, well, with, they're absolutely magnificent. And th these are photos from this book. I'm not showing all of the book, so you have to go buy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, Hyman died about ten years ago, I think, of of cancer. So she died in her sixties. So mm -hmm. young, we we should still be getting pictures from her, but alas, we aren't. Um, she did like so, and you will also appreciate that the reason we are one of the many reasons we're using Fairy Queen as our model for Drake Alchemicus is she did a illustrated version of Saint George and the Dragon, which is book from the fairy queen the first book from the fairy queen that we're we're, we're practicing mm -hmm. with and that one won um the caldecott medal which is the great prize for children's book illustration i love her work so much very it's, it's so very amazing and haunting and exquisite and beautiful right it's like she gets she got everything yeah. that uh these fairy stories are trying to capture of the antiquity, the passion, if, if mm. they're not all for kids in the sense that if you like look in the marginalia of the drawing, you're going, what is that? What's going on there? Oh my goodness. Um, so she, she, I, 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 she, she had a daughter, but she also partnered with a, a woman in her later years. So we see, we see complicated stories here in the background, but I, nobody can match the way she draws hair as far as I'm concerned. Hair as Trina Schoenheimer draws, she nailed, she nails it. Yeah, she nailed the hair. <laughs> Which is a very appropriate for a story about women's beauty. 
<laughs> yes. So what are fairy stories? Professor, who loved Trina Schertheimen as she was growing up and has spent her entire life teaching Tolkien. Oh, no, since 2005. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even have to say anything. I, I'm, I'm in monologue now. We're going there. Wait, no, let, no, let me trigger you again. Wait, Hold no, on trigger me, What's please. What's a fairy story? What's a fairy story, RFP? Oh, look, I have another book. I've got three books. Okay, so what is a fairy story? I will now lecture. Um, people, because we don't have a big audience right now, so you guys are not going to get interrupted by Super Chats as I, as I now pontificate or professor or confess i don't know anyway so people often reference tolkien because he wrote a very famous lecture on fairy stories right and um i was uh, so i and my other my other referent here i have a copy of the annotated brothers grimm to tell you where we're going with this who that was it's got gold on it i see it's gold. got it's got gold right it's very it's very gold and um it was um translated Edited with notes by Maria Tater and translated by her. She is, uh, what or was in 2000-something when this book came out. 2004, it was new. Um, she was, let's see, uh, Dean for the Humanities and John L. Loeb Professor of Germanic Languages and Literatures at Harvard University and lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is not why I bought it. <laughs> um, I bought it because there's an introduction by A.S. Byatt and if you know anything about modern um, sort of fantasy romance literature, you'll know by it um, won the Booker Prize for Possession back in the 80s. I have a, I don't think it's a first print paperback, but it's a British print paperback. So when she came here to give a lecture and read from her work, I got her to sign that copy. And of course she recognized it and I felt really good because like, no! And the thing is, by it also writes fairy stories, right? So we've got a lot of like scholarly lineage in my lap at the moment. Um, and I forgot where I was going. Oh yes, so in Maria Tater's um, Dean of Humanities from Harvard introduction to the Grim Fairy Tales, she quotes Tolkien. I, you didn't think I could bring it back, right? I can, I can, I'm that good. Okay, with, you're a boomerang. I'm a boomerang. <laughs> Although sometimes you have to throw me way and wait a long time before I come back. Circle the I've gone around. Here back. we are. Santa Claus has nothing you're on me you. when I get a lecture going. Okay, so what Tater says about Tolkien is telling because this is the part of his argument that most people will know, right? And I think I'll, I'll read this bit, right? Because she gave a long quote. Um, so she says, J.R. Tolkien recognized how powerfully the magic of a happy ending resonates with listeners and readers when he described the blissful relief that comes with the words, and they lived happily ever after. So it's sort of signature conclusion to a fairy story. Like, what are fairy stories about happily ever after, right? And he says, quote, mm. the consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly, of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. 
With that ending comes a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality, end quote. Um, and then she says, fantasy, escape, recovery, and consolation. These were for Tolkien the defining features of fairy tales. And they tell us something about how the fairy tale promises restitution for loss, injury, grief, damage, harm. For every girl who loses her mother and is persecuted by her stepmother, there will be a king who boils that stepmother in a vat of oil filled with snakes, toads, and lizards. <laughs> and so forth. So that that fairy stories are consoling and and Tolkien talks about you know, it's escapist because you're escaping from the prison of disenchantment um, and recovery mm. and fantasy, right? And so like, and and most people when they think of fairy stories and 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 invoke Tolkien are going to to do that, right? They're they're enchantments and and escape. Okay, so we'll we'll go with that. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, Terry Pratchett. Oh no, no, no wait, no. Uh, boomerang oh, okay. come on let me <laughs> don't bring me my boomerang back i want to just hold that one out there keep going yeah okay so but i mean do we all agree all five of you are here where is everybody um <laughs> they're chasing the boomerang they, they, they are they're trying to figure out what on earth she's talking about i was like i'm never going to get the popular audience i want if i if i'm relying on these boomerang throws am i guys 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 come on it's not that hard you can stay with me and you can replay the video if you if you lost the space. Mel says, my copy of that Snow White arrived. The kids love it. It's magnificent. I, it's like, if you have not yet discovered Trina Schardt-Hyman's fairy books, you are missing out on some of the great art of the modern period. There's th that boomerang still out there. Okay, so. I'm just going to call, all right, it's upgraded to Zoomerang. Zoomerang, it's a Zoomerang. Zoom, 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 zoom. Okay, so we, we've established that scholar, scholars at Harvard recognize Tolkien as an authority on fairy stories. We got that, right? And recognizing mm -hmm. Tolkien on fairy stories, it's typically this, this idea that he gave of eucatastrophe, right? This happy ending, this sudden joyous turn with the ideas of escape, recovery, and consolation. Um. Mm. There's also there's also some other stuff in the in the essay on whether fairy stories are primarily for children and the super stories and stuff like that. But we'll just go with this this sort of one one version of fairy stories as they console, right? Is that what Terry Pratchett says? Class, just say no because I my, the, this is the thing is if I, once once my my students and 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 my undergraduates get a wind of how I do this, they just sit there. <laughs> She's like. She's done what she's she's asked another of her twit questions, which we know the answer to is no. And we'll just wait for her to explain why. Right. OK, so what's funny about what <laughs> I'm just entertaining myself by this point. <laughs> oh, no, it's entertaining. I'm just not going to say anything. <laughs> You're waiting for the boomerang. OK, so the, w one idea is that they make us feel good, right? But Pratchett, who is is nothing if nothing but mischievous, right? Our 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 sample for today from Pratchett is Witches Abroad, which is one of my absolute favorite of his books, which includes um, mirrors, right? So mirrors, there's a Snow White element here too. But the witches in this story are having to fight the stories, right? Because in in this story, fairy stories are the thing that binds you into having certain outcomes. For example. 
For every girl who loses her mother and is persecuted by her stepmother, there will be a king who boils that stepmother in a vat oil of oil filled with snakes, toads, and lizards, right? That we have this one version of storytellers, fairy stories, is that they have the kinds of endings that feel satisfying, right? This mm -hmm. is what Pratchett says about stories. This is, Annette, this is and what's what's lovely. I've, I've given you guys all of my references now. Pay attention. A.S. Byatt, J.R. Tolkien, Terry Pratchett. They've all actually been in conversation with each other for decades now about fairy stories. Pratchett quotes Tolkien. She sorry, Byatt quotes Pratchett quotes Tolkien. Pratchett plays off of Tolkien. Tater talking about the grim fairy tales talks about Tolkien, right? It's like the, one of the ways in which you know that you're in a fairy story is everybody's referencing everybody else. Mm. <laughs> and within this, this sort of scholarly literary and by it, by it's not a professor. She's a novelist, right? Crafting of the way stories work. We're trying to figure out in fact, why we're so attached to them. I think, um, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, Pratchett, whom Byatt quotes in the essay that she writes on fairy stories. <laughs> I I should I should go back to the 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 you know the the the, the manuscripts that have all those vines entwining everything, mm -hmm. right? It's a really good image for the way story the storytelling happens, right? Everything gets entangled up and entwined and everything else, and. On the Discworld, people take things seriously, like stories, because stories are important. People think that stories are shaped by people. In fact, it's the other way around. Stories exist independently of their players. If you know that, the knowledge is power. Stories, great flapping ribbons of shaped space-time, have been blowing and uncoiling around the universe since the beginning of time, and they have evolved. The weakest have died and the strongest have survived and they have grown fat on the retelling, stories twisting and blowing through the darkness. And their very existence overlays a faint but insistent pattern on the chaos that is history. Stories etch grooves deep enough for people to follow in the same way that water follows certain paths down a mountainside. And every time fresh actors tread the path of the story, the groove runs deeper. This is called the theory of narrative. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I blew my reading. This is called the theory. <laughs> I was doing so well. <clears throat> this is called the theory of narrative causality. And it means that a story once started takes a shape. Unlike that sentence. Okay. It picks up. <laughs> Everybody's going to be lost in these flapping ribbons of story. They'll have no idea what Just I'm talking about. Dig deeper. Dig, dig, dig. dig. You guys dig, realize dig, we're dig. still talking about why storytellers matter, right? And why you're in one. Okay. This is called the theory of narrative causality, and it means that a story once started takes a shape. It picks up. Stop it. It picks up all the vibrations of all the other workings of that story that have ever been. That this is why history keeps on repeating all the time. So a thousand heroes have stolen fire from the gods. A thousand wolves have eaten grandmother. A thousand princesses have been kissed. A million unknowing actors have moved unknowing through the pathways of story. It is now impossible for the third and youngest son of any king if he should embark on a quest which has so far claimed his older brothers not to succeed. 
Stories don't care who takes part of them. All that matters is the story gets told, that the story repeats. Or, if you prefer to think of it like this, stories are a parasitical life form, warping lives in the service of only the story itself. It takes a special kind of person to fight back and become the bicarbonate of history once upon a time. Okay, so Granny Weatherwax is, of course, the, the one they fight. No, the witches fight back, right? So... <laughs> it's it's it we, we it's like on the one hand we want these stories because they they give us comfort and frames and resolution mm -hmm. and on the other there's this and this is i think when so, some people are worried about like the postmodernist breaking all the stories there's a middle term in all of that where feminists and um and when i was in college and i did Yes, an entire term paper on fairy stories, which is somewhat rate why I have all these references, because like I read about it in college. Um, back in the 80s, the worry was was largely psychoanalytical and feminist, and people were you know wanting to either see the stories, particularly feminists, see the stories as traps for different kinds of expectations or things that you could, you know, mm. subvert and rewrite. And, and what, excuse me, I'm flapping around too much. The stories are flapping everywhere. Uh, what, Pratchett, what Pratchett does in his fantasy is play with that problem of the story. You know, you want fairy stories to have particular kinds of shape, and yet you also want to be able to disrupt them. And in Witches Abroad, um, it turns out Granny Weatherax's sister is trying to play the part of the good witch by making all the stories play out, right? So she's got a princess. She's got a frog that she's turned into a duke, duck, D-U-C, who she's trying to make the princess marry. And of course it's a frog. So why would you want to marry a frog and granny mm -hmm. and, and the other witches have to show up and rescue the princess in effect, whose name I'm forgetting from the, from the magic of the story. And, and Lily granny's sister is creating all of these stories by way of standing between mirrors, right? She's, she's got mirror magic. And so she's able to project herself around. It's very internet. <laughs> she's able to project herself mm. around by looking in the mirrors and, and therefore the resonating, right? That's a sort of perpetual reflection of stories. Yes. The whole of mirrors. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Which is fantastic. To think about but also terrifying <laughs> because the if people are formed by stories then we have an increase in the medium power mm -hmm. of being able to tell them that means an increase in formation and reformation and then undoing potentially you know the as we've talked about the medium you know, you were talking um, a few streams ago about McLuhan's work on the radio and what the radio technology did to Europe. I mean, Europe inherited the, the radio technology and suddenly it goes to war because uh, it's uh, flooded with story, particular stories, particular narratives suddenly being reformed, militarized, the transformation of the, the European peoples into a uh, tribal uh, fascistic uh, military machines comes through uh, Marconi's radio technology. So we're, we're, we're kind of reworked in this way, but then it's like, okay, what happens if the, in, the technology increases time 
is shortened that the time it takes to reform somebody in a story mm. and undo them changes also yeah it's there it, it's interesting that he called a weather wax you know it's like casting you know the the wax um the wax method for making jewelry do you know about that you know the you know they they do the the carving in the mm. wax and then once the the design has been made it's the it's how this was made this uh old coptic mm. cross here it's a lost wax lost wax technique exactly and then the, the silver is thrown into mm -hmm. it um it's like the mines mm. uh, so it's interesting this kind of weathering of the you know the the mentality and stories like this the increase in technology what happens when people are uh, being continuously remolded mm -hmm. Well, so it's, 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 I mean, it's interesting the way when people talk about fairy stories, including Tolkien, they like talking about this retelling process. And I mean, Tolkien, Tolkien's criticism, for example, of Beowulf studies, which I've, I've said so many times, I never remember which context I've said it, but, um, you know, he, he was upset with the critics for not paying attention to it as itself a particular crafted story, right? It has a particular shape that the artist gave it, the poet gave it. Um, that people are always look, going through it, looking for the the um, elements that went into it, right? So inst instead mm -hmm. of appreciating the actual story that is told by the Beowulf poet in whenever it's you know, it's written down in around eleven hundred or uh, around a thousand, um, that they they go through it and say, well, this this story element comes from this part, right? Here's a dragon. Here's this feud. Here's this, you know, history bit and. And what's really mm. interesting is where all those pieces came from. And when when Tolkien his his other, his, so one that you catastrophe and the the escape recovery consolation fantasy is is one famous part of the fairy stories. The other is is this concept of the soup of stories, and you know that you're going that he's writing at a time where he's yeah. talking at a time when folklore stories has been constantly going around and finding out how as it were, you know, there's always this repetitions of the story, which both Pratchett mm. and, and, and Tater are playing off of that a thousand times this has happened because we keep retelling it, retelling it, retelling it. And it's always happening over and over again. Mm. There's just this cauldron of story that they keep throwing new elements in and repeating it and repeating it, and repeating it. And, um, I mean, going back to our earlier meditation on, the degree to which nothing means anything if everything refers constantly to everything else. It's like that, that soup imagery has always felt to me a little, it's funny because he's trying to do yeah. it. It's like saying there's different ingredients and you make a soup, but this feeling that all stories, I, I think this is the opposite version. All stories constantly always repeat off of each other. At what point is there a meaning in a story? Mm. I tangled myself up. <laughs> This sometimes happens. Well, not rare, not not often, but sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> too many threads. <laughs> the um. Oh well. So no, I mean, the... all of these 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 fairy stories are supposed to be women's stories that they tell around spinning and weaving and stuff. So whatever we do right now works, mm. right? <laughs> because we're women weaving stories. There you go. Did it. So uh -huh. there. <laughs> <laughs> weaving. Um, it seems like this, uh, idea of the, the catastrophe is, 
answering the desire for justice. It's this uh, need to have, you know, the 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 wrongs written right again. Mm. Well, the, it's justice kind is of... also. It's like it's it's meaningful causation that that there will be yes. the, you know like the things have to happen correctly so that the the, the wicked stepmother gets punished yes yes so that's also interesting with people that are wanting to constantly rewrite them to insert a new meaning into the stories losing the referentiality mm -hmm. so even in that soup losing which ones are looking at you know their other 999 tellings prior to this thousand telling right. thousand telling but uh nothing causes anything else because the you know the the way that we're working with them now is that it's all it's all relative so there's no referential so there's no there's no cause for anything um the i don't know if i'm explaining this very well similar to the words that we were describing before that everything is a container for meaning mm -hmm. the story itself is a container for meaning and that people are using the story as a container for the cause the, the, the causality and the need for uh, justice for the U catastrophe mm -hmm. and then emptying that people are wanting to empty this to insert whatever they want in there so not only not only is there anything objective for this entire you know odd soup to be anchored onto or referring but the the reflection of all of these stories looking at each other and referencing each other are being emptied constantly at the same time as they're looking at each mm. other it's like a rubik's cube where the colors are changing because you don't have to have uh the same fixed colors you know uh, people are manipulating a rubik's cube but you know you've got an aim of having on all sides red green yellow whatever the other colors are Imagine if you were dealing with a Rubik's cube, and someone was peeling off, peeling off the stickers in the middle, and slapping on a brand new color, and then go, "Okay, solve mm -hmm. it." It's an unsolvable Rubik's cube of, of of fairy story, because there's no uh, there's no continuity. But like the, you you don't even have fixed meaning while you're trying to solve right. it. Right. Mm. Well, and what's funny is, so there, there are two different ways some people talk about saying in fairy stories. Now I don't remember who was saying this, whether it was Tolkien or somebody else, that, the, the, you know, the thing, the thing that happens in the story is the right thing. Um, but on, so sometimes the tests that the characters are given don't necessarily make sense except in story world, but they feel right mm -hmm. in, in the midst of the, the storytelling. But on the other hand, and, and, and that, that does seem to satisfy because there's a feeling like, well, the characters think it's meaningful. <laughs> So clearly it satisfies, right? This weird test that you had to do. Um, Tolkien didn't like allegory. We all know that. Um, that it, it's not satisfying when the story is simply standing in for this other argument, I think. 
So that the, it, mm. the, the people like the feeling in a fairy story is there's analogs and reference and maybe anagogy, right? When I was saying that the, the, this feeling of being in, in the story of the the gospel of, of, of creation um, is contemplative and satisfying because it lifts you up into a mystery and fairy stories mm -hmm. do feel like they have that capacity to lift this up into mystery because they don't quite make sense necessarily, but then you can figure out how they make sense, but then there's another layer and it feels like these, there's yet more sense there. Um, mm -hmm. But the, I mean, I, I think, I think what the, the sort of folklore study level is, you know, like trickster stories are often, they're not just the, the trickster, just like, it's like coyote mm. stories or the spider stories on a Nancy. Sometimes those or Br'er Rabbit, not Br'er Rabbit, oh, Raider, oh, the yeah, fox, yeah, yeah. right? It's like there's there's a lot yeah. of stories where justice is not the end result. It's it's um. They're not satisfying. Mm. They leave you uh, not full. You're not satiated by the tale. Uh, at least in my. I mean, you just said a Nancy, so I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because it's just, it's a dissatisfying outcome. It's, uh, it's not a full meal, so mm. to speak. But I don't know way I can describe it. Okay, so now we have a problem that there there is a premise that, oh, fairy stories are always out there and they're always clashing around and potentially always available to us and they have meaning in these mysterious ways. And then the other, the other reality is that there are certain stories like Snow White that people have regularly read and, and declared to have deep and re resonant meaning that's available to all ages for all time. Oh yes. She's going to deconstruct this. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Why would that be? Um, and uh, you know, that what, what's funny about things like Snow White when it's in the Grimm's collection, we're going to go there. Uh, that what you just said, not feeling satisfied by trickster stories, or, I mean, some of the ones I've read a fair variety of, I mean, I'm not a myth, I'm not a folklorist in, in the sense of, I, I know tons of these, but I am curious about them. Um, things like the Navajo trickster stories, um, th mm. things, things you, you expect a kind of resolution in certain situations and they don't go there. And you say, okay, that those stories don't seem to keep getting retold. Whenever they get retold by Disney, for example, there are certain expectations mm. and structures. And these stories, I, I, I do have a, I have a um, historian's skepticism about how old most of these are. <laughs> they, f they yeah. feel old, but they're like because you read them when you were ten. But the the Grimm's made their collection in a very particular moment in history, which was eighteen twelve fifteen. So that that illusion of repetition and 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 ever always there is guess what a feature of modernity dun 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 <laughs> what haven't they done um it's all the 19th century it's usually always the 19th century i the once the one place where i'm i'm sort of in sympathy with the great tartaria you know the the Tartarian Empire thesis is it does seem like something just got erased <laughs> around the 19th mm. century and all this stuff got put in and including all these kind of virtual histories of things like oh yes the story world 
the legends of the past, the ancientness of all of this. It's like, guys, they printed it in the 19th century and the 19th century spent itself retelling all of this during the industrial revolution out of longing for a world that could feel dying, mm. but had no clue what was, yeah. or they invented it or they made it up because they, they mythologize, you know, the countryside in particular ways in the 19th century, because everybody's moving into the city. Mm. I mean, is it their way of dealing with the grief of becoming hyper urbanized? Much of it, yes, and and that's okay. So the, the 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 spoiler alert on this: that when the Grimms collect their fairy stories, they have a number of informants, um, and the the mythology that develops around it, that they're peasant storytellers. They weren't; um, they were city people for the most part, and for the most part, they were fairly literate. And so, what we get from the Grimms already mm-hmm. is um, retellings of stories that they probably had read in books. Right. There's, it's like the, there's a whole there's mm-hmm. a whole sort of layer, mytho- mythological layer of this is all oral storytelling. Well, yeah, sort of in the sense that um, some of these these storytellers are retelling stories. They we can find the printed versions of what they were talking about. And Snow White's, in fact, one of them. It's it's an interesting there's an interesting back version of, of that one. I, I gave you some homework. Do you remember that? You yeah, did. You, I think you read. I read. You read some of that. I read a little bit of it. <laughs> that there's yeah. there's this night there's this 18th century version of Rakildis, and you can look it up on Wikipedia mm-hmm. too, where she is weirdly enough the child of Albertus Magnus, who's a magician, and it's it's the Wicked Witch. It's it's never mind Wicked, which is a different version. But um, the 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 prim, the the, the Maleficent, right? We're going to tell the story from the perspective mm-hmm. of the Wicked Witch. Been there, done that already. It's an 18th century story. Sorry. I'm such a killjoy. <laughs> you didn't expect that, did you guys? I, I think it's I think it's in the it's in the it's in the essay that I, I, I sent you. Sorry, I had to plug my laptop. Oh, okay. We're we're, we're getting um, our references here, guys. Um there we go. So the original one is okay. Um Another German source, this is G. Ronald Murphy's The Owl, the Raven, and the Dove, which is in Snow White, so we're going to get to that. Um, He's talking about the sources of Snow White. Another German source acknowledged by the Grimm's, so they say they got it from this, is the much lengthier story of Rakilda in Musaus's collection of German fairy tales, Volksmarschen der Deutschen, published initially in 1782, some 30 years prior to their own first edition. Musaus, I don't try to say this, M-U-S-A-Umlaut-U-S, style has much of the ironic and even satirical air of Perrault and Bazille, the great French collectors collectors of stories, and seems far more destined to appeal to the rationally and sophisticated cynical adult reader than to children. His version begins with an ungrim-like lampoon of piety and devotion in the person of the excessively pro-clerical Count of Brabant, Gunderich de Pfaffenfreunde, Pfaffenfreund, uh, Gundrich, a clergy friend, who is always at mass or walking in processions, and who thus restricted in his time for procreation has no children. It is intimated that the understandably childless Countess of Brabant finally achieves pregnancy only after a very private sacramental confession. It's an anti-clerical version, right? So she gets, she has confession with um, Albertus Magnus, who is otherwise a great Dominican scholar, and by the 18th century has a reputation as a magician okay 
Albertus Magnus, in turn, his remarkable interest in the future child noted by court gossip, then fashions a magic mirror through his knowledge of the black arts as a gift for the child. I mean, this makes more sense of medieval sources, like, you know, scrying mirrors and things like that. John Dee has one mm. to talk to angels and everything. So in this version, the 18th century version, the, the, the husband is so pious that he neglects his wife. She goes to confession, has sex with the, the, the priest, gets, a, has, gets pregnant. Magnus makes her child a black arts mirror. Um, this child is Rakilda, who's not, who becomes the jealous mother of Blanca, the persecuted heroine. The mother uses the enchanted mirror in the traditional manner to find out who is the most beautiful in the land of Brabant. The mirror, however, is not capable of magic speech, but answers sensibly by showing an image, as mirrors will do. As Rakilda's behavior towards her more beautiful child deteriorates in a nice touch, the mirror darkens and rusts to a degree that its image becomes faint and useless. The mother attempts three times to poison... And this one, it's the mother and the daughter. It's not a stepmother. So, so much mm. for all the stepmothers. The Grimm's put a stepmother in there because people were being bothered by the fact that it was a mother going after her own daughter. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. Okay. Um, guys, I'm going to break all of your illusions. We're going to give you a better story, okay? Um, uh, okay, so, as Rakilda's behavior towards her more beautiful child deteriorates... Mirror darkens. The mother attempts three times to poison her daughter, first with a half-poisoned apple, the pomegranate, the second time with perfumed soap, and the third time with a loving letter from herself laced with poisonous salts. She has forced the court doctor, Sambul the Jew. This is a very interesting element because Jews are often magicians in these medieval stories, these actual old stories. Um, but in um, this one, she's forced the court doctor, Sambal the Jew, to concoct the poisons by bullying them by the offer of money. But each time his conscience gets the better of him and he merely injects a sleeping potion or strong narcotic into the apple and the soap and smears only sleep-inducing aromatic salts on the letter. He is punished by Rakilda for his lack of success at causing the death of her child by having his beard pulled out and his ears cut off. In contrast to yeah. <laughs> in contrast to the Grimms, therefore, Mizawas eschewed the mystical or magical, made the conscience of the professional doctor the instrument of mercy, and thereby enabled Blanca Snow White to awaken reasonably each time from the casket on her own. By turning her apparent death into a medically induced sleep, Mizaos makes the moment of crisis in the narrative fully responsive to reason and avoids any real need for supernatural agency to overcome death. The story's religious content is thus not found in the realm of the spiritual or mystical, but is in the realm of morality and conscience. Um, and the dwarves are court dwarves. All right. So, I mean, th this is what's so funny. It's like, talk about my life, right? I, 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 <laughs> I'm always wrecking people's fantasies. Um, the, the Grimm's, when they're making their collection, they're romanticizing stuff, quite literally. It's the 19th mm. century, romantic. And this is where it starts, right? With stuff like, oh, we're going to collect all these stories. They've got people who know some of the stories that they've read in books and are retelling them to them. And then, guess mm -hmm. what? The Grimm's rewrite them themselves. <laughs> so there's, yes, I know that. Um and and I this is in is that, go ahead. That, so they've they've retold them themselves and airbrushed a little, put a little grim magic on top. Sprinkly, sprinkly, <laughs> right? And and they're they're actually really good. It's like so we have this you know idea that fairy fairy tales have a, a particular kind of um, style, 
right? That 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 mm. they are this this sort of you know magnificent sonorous once upon a time, and you know the 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 the, the feeling of um the the feeling of distance and and it's it's ancient and past because it has this sort of biblical kind of character. Hmm. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Could the Grimms have done it on purpose? Okay, so here, here's Tater gives an example of, of retellings that they go through in their various editions because they're actually, so what's funny about it is the Grimms start by saying, um, you know, they're going to collect all these folk tales and they're going to do them from oral transcriptions. Well, guess what? People aren't necessarily very good storytellers. And so some of their original oral mm. transcriptions are really boring. So they rewrite those. But they also... Um, understand that their audience is not going to be like fellow academics. It's going to be parents reading to their children. And so they rewrite them so that they're better to read out loud. Ironic or mm. what? Right. So here is, here is the revisions to the frog King Prince, which is, we said in, which is abroad is playing off of the frog King. Right. Um, in the, in the first edition of 1812, the frog King or iron Heinrich, reads this way. Once upon a time there lived a princess. One day she went into the forest and sat down by a cool well. A golden ball was her favorite toy. She loved to amuse herself by throwing it up into the air and catching it when it came back down. Mm -hmm. Okay. In 1819, the first sentences read as follows. Once upon a time there lived a princess who was so bored that she didn't know what to do. She took a golden ball that she liked to play with and went out into the forest. In the middle of the woods, there was a well with clear, cool water. She sat down next to it and threw the ball in the air, then caught it. And that's how she moved, amused herself. It's still not very... It, you're not going to, like, make movies of that, right? It's like, great, she's playing with the ball. No. No! It's boring. No, it's bored girl with the balloon. Yeah. <laughs> Spice it up a bit. By 1857, the opening to the tale had lost its choppy quality, says Tater, and took a lyrical turn so that it produced, when read out loud, the effect of a narrative that flows naturally in a way the unedited version did not. These are literary constructions. Our quote, oral stereotypes, like ancient wisdom. No, they're the Grimm's. Once upon a time, when wishes still came true, there lived a king who had beautiful daughters. The youngest was so lovely that even the sun, which had seen so many things, was filled with wonder when it shone upon her face. They're hitting their stride now, see? <laughs> mm -hmm. There was a deep, dark forest near the king's castle, and in that forest, beneath an old linden tree, was a spring. There's a well in the other one. So if you're going to start doing, like, folklore analyses on this and say, oh, springs are this and that, the Grimm's put it in, Okay because they're good storytellers. <laughs> but mm -hmm. it's like, why are they good storytellers? Like, what are they actually doing in their storytelling? Okay. Whenever the weather turned really hot, the king's daughter would go out into the woods and sit down at the edge of the cool spring. And if she was bored, she would take out her golden ball, throw it up in the air and catch it. That was her favorite plaything. And now, so obviously scholars get this, right? It's like, and Tolkien sort of understood, I mean, he'd studied a lot of how get, things get rewritten. It's not just that the stories are told mm -hmm. over and over again. Actual artists are rewriting them to make them better. Mm. 
which is interesting too. Because then we have to think about the stories not as neutral artifacts, but as directly influenced by the artists that have created them or recreated them or retold them. Which brings us to a way different kind of Rubik's Cube to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Could we the be in the craft of an artist? Could we be living in a created mm. world with meaning and structure because the storyteller is making it? Go yeah. here. <laughs> Shall we read Snow White now? I think we should. Off my lap. Okay, so when when Trina Shartiman did it, she used the Grimm's version, which was a good, uh, although translated by Paul Hines, who I don't know who is otherwise. Um, but she has, so I, so we don't need to read the whole thing because, but anyway, the opening, right? This is, this goes with this, this picture where the mother is. I love this picture. It's so beautiful. And the, and the mother is sitting there with her hand out and she's pricked her finger on the, the needle, the sewing needle, and it's got three drops of blood. Once in the middle of winter, when snowflakes were falling like feathers from the sky, the queen sat sewing by a window, and its frame was of black ebony. As she sewed, she glanced up at the snow and stuck her finger with the needle, and three drops of blood fell into the snow. Since the red seemed so beautiful against the white, she thought to herself, If only I had a child as white as snow, as red as blood, as dark as ebony. Soon afterward, she gave birth to a little girl who was as white as snow and as red as blood, and whose hair was as black as ebony. She was named Snow White, and the very moment the child was born, the queen died. Now, knowing what we do from the example of the frog prince, we get that that's the Grimm's, right? That they put in all of yeah. that beautiful imagery of the feathers and the snow and the the sort of, including like the, the, the actual three drops of blood. Three is, you know, it shows up in stories a lot, but earlier versions, quote versions of Snow White, like the... It, it's not well it's not that we're killed there's another one i i've read so many today it's it's this it's, it's, sometimes it's, it's more gruesome like they see pools of blood and blah 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 blah. that everything mm -hmm. in that paragraph is crafted by the grims to give you that feeling mm. yeah it's painted the imagery is painted very clearly as as beautifully and as exquisitely as hyman is illustrating their version mm. Mm. even down to the the choice of colors in that opening scene. It's very striking. Yeah, you you have this habit of doing like noticing dangerous things and one of the one of the dangerous things that Tater Tater <laughs> noticed in Sorry. no no it's, it's like I was laughing about it when you were prepping cuz it's it's in Tater that she she recognizes that the Grimm's fairy tales become um you know recommended by a certain group of people in the 30s in Germany. Um, and and that mm -hmm. German, you know, d d people are stuck with thinking. Um, she's saying the Grimms have had a powerful effect beyond the borders of German-speaking countries. Few cultural documents have played so key a role in constructing a national image. If the first association of many people in this country, the United States, to the word Germany, is to Hitler and the Holocaust. <laughs> 
The second is more likely to the Grimm's child stories and household tales. This odd juxtaposition has resulted in a strange conflation of horror and fantasy, linking Germany with what the historian Saul Friedlander has described as a cult of death and kitsch in the popular imagination. The Grimm's children's yeah. stories and household tales has been denounced precisely for its narrative tolerance of these two extremes. Quote, this is Saul Friedlander. Typical of the German fairy tale is the juxtaposition of the commonplace and the intimate with the horrors of death and all the tortures of calculated cruelty. And those colors. Don't yeah. notice. Stop noticing these things. <laughs> that was the first thing I, I thought of. Black and white. Come on. I was like, oh, it's red. White, snow white, red, black and white. <laughs> what does that remind me of? <laughs> Clearly Germany. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason why it resonated so much, you know? If you're a synesthetic person and you're reading something and you can actually see the visuals, I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Snow White Waffin, it's very funny. <laughs> you're going to get us into trouble, you know. I'm sorry, Stop it. I'm sorry. Stop seeing stuff that connects to other stuff. It was... <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to be knitting these fairy threads together, am I? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but this I was th but this is a sort of fear I mean, that people have constantly. It's like if we associate this with that, then it becomes part of the story and it's like resonates out and becomes meaningful, I guess. But isn't but but this is stupid because instead <laughs> of realizing that yes, that's what happens. I mean, no, but it is dumb. It's stupid because this is just the human mind. This is what the the human mind right. does, and it's either you're going to do it um, consciously, like like i did this morning <laughs> it's like oh, wow <laughs> or you're gonna do it subconsciously because you're not that kind of um you know you don't have that kind of neurology that's doing it that is is uh you know um liminal or whatever you know it's a subliminal thing but the, it, denying the effect is stupid because it's going to happen anyway all of advertising runs on this fact all, all of, of it, it. Edward Bernays wrote his book Propaganda based on this understanding of the of the uh, the mind that the human beings uh, need to put these kinds of threads together. Mm -hmm. So we're still living in a world that uses it. It's just that you know I I made the connection I made this morning, and then people can say, oh well, you can't do that. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't do it, but clearly there is some very uh, strong resonance that is a kind of uh, fairy residue on a culture that makes them sort of pick up on this thing and think, okay, we like those colors. Why do you like mm. those colors so much? You know, if you've heard, if you- Well, so it could have been, saying, the Grimm's record, become but... very, very, I mean, they are incredibly popular in the 19th and 20, early 20th century. And I do believe Hitler recommended yes. them to the Germans. So, uh, because, you know, the sort of but story as, as cult, culture formation and folk formation yes um but i mean what's interesting is like saying the the what people in and we've we've talked about this well we talk about this a lot in our in our writing of our poem that our imagery needs to be i mean purposeful but not always we don't always know why we're choosing certain things because it's just right and then later we find out it was even more right than we considered mm. but that everything can't relate to everything else right there has to be some I mean, actual story structure, actual cosmological 
meaningfulness of things being chosen and mm. what I think the, 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 the thing that's frustrating about it is people can't, blah, 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 blah. the Grimm's chose, the well, Grimm's did all of this on purpose. They are, and, yeah, and figuring yeah. out what they're drawing off of hopefully actually matters for what we think the stories mean because those artists put it in there on purpose. And you could say, well, they're not necessarily, mm. you know, consciously thinking of why they have all of these associations. But there are other ways in which we can see they took Rakildas, changed it, romanticized it, mm. and came out with a different kind of story, which is not the Albertus Magnus head of magic black mirror that he gave to the child, you know, Rakildas, and she used it mm. to try to kill her daughter. Right? It, it's like th there's there's some structural elements in there, but Snow White is not the same that same meaning no no because as artists they've tried to make it sink right into the psyche which you know it makes sense because it's like uh i mean as like i was saying before you know it things have a resonance they kind of stain a culture you say midas well you should think gold instantly like there's this understanding of a connection between you know the word associations or uh you know a color and this and that and that that kind of thing when you're living in that um particular fairy soup certain things will go together after a while because the artists that have created the stories have made those connections and they're so deep and they get repeated so many times that they're kind of working on um uh autopilot in a way mm. so that that's why i was saying like it, it i i was struck by it because it was kind of like um you know, reading another, uh, reading another story from another culture, like you know, I reference the Greek stories a lot, but it's 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 kind of looking at it and saying, oh wow, they've done a very similar thing, mm -hmm. where you talk about the Gorgon Medusa suddenly. Okay, saying that if you've been reading those stories often enough, it will give you very strong imagery almost instantly, and a lot of associations that come with it. So they have. <laughs> the Germans have managed to do this in a way that's sort of like, okay, we're going to pick up on the imagery from this particular literature. Right. And then pull it into another um, field of reference and a field of use, which, I mean, it's, it is uh, scary to think about how that can happen because the same thing as some audio technology, you're using an existing grammar of um, fairy imagery to then, into a different uh, use. Well, so the most famous example, way. the most famous example, and this is the one of the things that I used, I've referenced reading this stuff in college in the 80s. And I did, so I did the fairy stories essay in a class on gender studies, mm. <laughs> which, which, which you know, it's like, there's, there was, I remember the repertoire of people, Jack Zipes did a lot of analysis of fairy stories. Um, I can't remember who else I was reading at the time. It's like, oh, there's uh, the Mad Woman in the Attic. Uh, Gilbert and Grabar and Gilbert did a lot of analysis. It's like there was a huge like subculture of analyzing fairy stories in the in the in the eighties, but they were all they were all playing off of um, one author in particular, Bruno Bettelheim. 
Bettelheim is very interesting. I mean, I read his uses of enchantment back in the 80s because I was reading this paper on fairy stories. Um, when mm -hmm. I showed up here at the University of Chicago, he had something of a reputation here because, oh, he'd been here <laughs> um, at something called the Orthogenic School, which I'm not quite clear about. But he was also, when we taught history of European civilization, he's there's a selection um, in one of our History of European Civilization readers where he's analyzing what happened at, oh yes, the concentration camps. Um, and mm. it, it was an early essay where he's talking about how the camps were actually breaking down people psychologically. So he was, says, apparently yeah. a psychologist. And his, his reading of the fairy stories and uses of enchantment is like, d just as Tolkien is deeply embedded in all of this, so is his. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Tater references him. I, I forgot to pay attention to exactly where but it's like everybody's going to reference Bettelheim at some point on how maybe she did or didn't oh well anyway um maybe she didn't I'm making it up it's a story now uh that um everybody's going to reference Bettelheim because he did a Freudian reading of the stories <laughs> And uh, yes. yes, right. And so if you if you in fact know that Snow White is all about coming of age and puberty and Oedipal conflicts, oh right, you're affected by uses of enchantment because that's been out there in the conversation um for a while. And then I did a little Wikipedia reading this morning. Apparently he lifted it and plagiarized it from somebody else, and that's apparently mm -hmm. now really famous. It wasn't in the eighties when I read stuff. And even more interesting, when he was hired at the University of Chicago, again, according to Wikipedia, it could be a fairy story. He had no academic training whatsoever in any of the fields that he was hired in. <laughs> he made it all up. Run. He was a really good <laughs> storyteller. He, I mean, <laughs> I, no, and it's like, was it in art he history? Was it in literature? Who knows? He kind of showed up as a refugee from Austria yep. and presented himself and managed to talk his way into getting a job at the University of Chicago in the wow. Genetic school. <laughs> and his story, his, his psychoanalytic reading of the puber pubertal crises, like the dwarves are mm. small men and stuff like that is now standard in the way people talk about the stories, but it's, it's thanks to this guy who thanks, hustled his way in. <laughs> thanks to Bruno Bettelheim's hustle. That's a good fairy story, don't you think? That's impressive. <laughs> anyway, but so of course, in a Freudian version, it's all about, you know, the crises of, of menstruation and sex. and. Well, he's just demonstrated beautifully what happens when the associations are fixed, you know? It's a... a that's the, the Freudian reading. And so people have run with it. So it's it's like it takes it takes a long time to uh, come out of that a, a particular. I don't know how I, how I would describe it like this, but this uh, fog. Yeah. Well, this this <laughs> this uh, tradition of interpretation, shall we say, which is Freudian, because okay, uh, so the the Grimm's are creating a romantic pigs. version in the nineteenth century. Freud obviously comes like Freud. Whatever he was, he was a great storyteller because everybody's convinced that he did something analytical and scientific. He didn't. He wrote myths, mm. and I've I've taught enough of his texts fairly carefully in the history of European civilization to be able to say this with some confidence. 
if you follow Freud's logic through all of his, quote, proofs, he's basically weaving myths. Mm. He's a great rhetorician. He's a great storyteller. And here comes Bruno Bettelheim. I mean, just to give you to give you a flavor of the way Bettelheim plays with this kind of stuff. Um, oh, he's talking about why, why in, in Snow White there's a hunter, right? In Snow White, as in mm -hmm. Little Red Riding Hood, a male who can be viewed as an unconscious representative of the father appears, the hunter who's ordered to kill Snow White but instead saves her life. Who else but a father substitute would seem to acquiesce to the stepmother's dominance and nevertheless, for the child's sake, dare to go against the queen's will? This is what the Oedipal and adolescent girl wishes to believe about her father, that even though he does as the mother bids him, he would side with his daughter if he were free to, tricking the mother as he did so. Why are rescuing male figures so often cast in the role of hunters in fairy tales? While hunting may have been a typically masculine occupation when fairy stories came into being, this is much too easy an explanation. At that time, princes and princesses were as rare as they are today, and fairy tales simply abound with them. But when and where these stories originated, hunting was an aristocratic privilege, which supplies a good reason to see the hunter as an exalted figure like a father. It goes on, and it's like, it's this kind of, and psych, psycho, psychoanalytic literature like Freud and Jung is full of this sort of stuff. It's like this projection of this ancient world, the swirling stories. It's like, guess what, guys? As historians, we know that's not true. I mean, the hunt, the hunting as an aristocratic pursuit, yes, but the the feeling of oh yes, these stories come out of this mist of time that we can't, we have no access to. Yes, we do, and they're those manuscripts that they're using to make pictures of for the movies that we rely on yeah. to know what the stories were when they were doing this in the middle ages. And it ain't this. Mm. She says categorically, <laughs> hoping, <laughs> hoping, hoping, well, hoping you go read Jan Ziokowski's fairy stories. I put it on our reading list. Like all of this, I can, I can footnote everything. Um, and it's mainly on our website under behind the scenes, right? Uh, there's a, if you look at behind the scenes, um, I'm looking it up so I can give you the proper title because it was a little complicated. Oh, come on, go behind the scenes. Um, Jan Ziokowski, who has done, among other things, a six volume series on one story <laughs> and the way it becomes mm. in, in the modern period, the sort of uh, focus of a lot of medievalisms. It's the jungle, Our Lady's Juggler. But he also did one, um, uh, Fairy Tales from Before Fairy Tales, the medieval Latin past of wonderful lies. And, and he goes through things like Little Red Riding Hood and shows how there are stories about a little girl in Red Hood and stuff like that hasn't, who gets eaten by a wolf. But most mm. of the structure of these stories that we think of as timeless is provably and manifestly modern. So they've been, they've been reworked in the modern context, which means they've been imprinted by modernity and the artists that have uh they've infused the stories with modernity so we're referencing them and not pre-modern storytelling mm -hmm. now that's interesting because that changes the soups as well that changes the soup that changes the rubik's cube completely yet again <laughs> the grimps are basically doing what tolkien did which was write stories mm -hmm. that should have been yep but if they're the only ones we're referencing we're stuck chronologically somehow. We do we do have this Tartarian Empire problem, 
which is sort of like, where is the yeah. past, right? Is yeah. is there an actual yeah. past that we can have access to? We, we started the stream tonight talking about Christ, right? Yes. Is there an actual yes. past of the story yeah. that we're actually living in? Can I oh. answer that? <laughs> well, let's, 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 let the boomerang is still out and it hasn't hit the kangaroo yet. Um, Okay. What did the Grimms do? Still right. And, and, and this, uh, so much of this relies on this premise. Like, so Bettelheim comes along, psychologizes all the stories in the sixties mm. and seventies. The feminists come along in the eighties and say, no, you know, women are being oppressed by these stories, which they're reading through Bettelheim. It's Freudian version, mm. right? So the oppression is of a Freudian structure. The Grimms, Stories are often used as the proof of how oppressive and bourgeois all of this stuff was. Mm. We okay, I'm hearing a lot of oppression because <laughs> <laughs> Snow White's housekeeping, right? Oh my goodness. Mm. Well, of course she's housekeeping. The Grimms are writing it for the 19th century mm. to sell books. Did we mention we have a Kickstarter? Keeping houses. <laughs> <laughs> they're selling books and they went we showed you with the the frog prints right they rewrite these things to be more re readable because they want to sell more books mm -hmm. and yet let's 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 go through snow white just a little bit so there are different elements and i i i, okay. I, I, I promise i wouldn't show all of trina chartheim and so you have to buy the book but so we have the mother uh, Snow White's mother pricks her finger, right? We have Snow White's relationship with her beautiful stepmother. And I do like that Hyman draws the stepmother is actually beautiful, right? She's not like wicked. Um, I mean, she's wicked, but she's she's um, clearly bothered by the beauty of the younger woman and yet herself very striking and mm -hmm. beautiful long blonde hair where Snow White has black hair. Um, in this image, Snow White has a, a bird on her shoulder, which becomes significant in the grim version um the that when snow white runs away um i didn't put the hunter in but oh whatever um she's surrounded by the dwarves who hymen draws very um individually right they have diff different um characters in their faces but they're they're not comic right they're they're men just short um the the stepmother in her mirror we see her now here racked with the need to make herself ugly so that she is disguised mm. and um, goes and offers the apple to Snow White, right? So we, we have these different, the, the, the stepmother, the dwarves, the apple, the mirror, um, the, this, the, this is a concluding image of the, the stepmother when she's in all of her magnificent jewelry and finery, right? Everything that Hyman puts in details like her, she's got this snake on her bracelet Right. And all of these incredible cameo imagery pendants and things on her belt and so forth. Yeah. And the um, Snow White surrounded by the dwarves, the prince coming and looking at her in this glass casket. Mm. Right. So these are the, 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 those will be the elements that most people recognize as Snow White. Now, I mean, one of the interesting yes. things about the, the the visuals of of Snow White, as people understand, is that the Disney version influenced a lot of the things that people think belong in the Snow White iconography. Um, mm. Although 
I, and I haven't done a full study of all of the background pictures from, from um, the 19th century, but you go to Wikipedia, you see some of these elements are already there, like the casket, the glass casket, right? So what do we see in this mirror? Here's the mirror, but it's blank. <laughs> of the, what did the Grimm's put in? that really matters. I can't see it. It's blank. It's blank. Okay, so we need we need we need G. Ronald Murphy to help us. <laughs> now, the, the thing to know about Ron Murphy is A, he's a medievalist. B, he's a literature professor. C, he's a Jesuit. Um I met him mm. um and he's he fan he I fangirled him and then he fangirled me because I used his book on the old Saxon gospel harmony, the Heliand, in my first book. And I called him my Virgil, mm -hmm. which he de he was delighted by. He thought that was great. It's like my Virgil. Yeah. I, and I think I picked that up. It's like let's talk about story levels, right? I picked that up from somebody else as a mm -hmm. phrase, like our Virgil, because it's like Dante, right? Virgil's going to lead us through this story. And Murphy led me through reading the Heliand, which we probably should do like a whole stream on. Um, he's also done books on things like the Parsifal, Wolfram von Eschenbach's Grail Quest, which matters. Um, he's done a wonderful mm. book on the image of the tree, the, the tree of salvation in the Norse and Christian stories. So he is literally an expert in the way in which stories get translated into new cultures and where they get blended, the way in which the, mm. the, the Christian stories will be, be incorporated. The, the point about the Helian story is, for example, at the baptism of Christ, when Christ comes out of the water... Jesus comes out of the water. In the Gospels, a dove is present in some ways, right? Either it's physically there or it descends or it's like a dove. Dove, right? In the Helian version, yes. it it there's an amazing twinning with the Woden image, Odin image of the ravens that sit on his shoulder, memory and mind, right? And so mm -hmm. Christ comes out of the water. There's the dove, which then is somehow like face vase magic, you can see one, you can see the other, it's blended. You see both the dove and the ravens. It's incredibly beautifully done. And you can read about that in my book, which I use his reading to see how stories happen <laughs> and reference mm -hmm. and play out. Murphy, whose reading we're about to share with you on Snow White, knows how stories work, right? How they play, how they get retold, how the power of the imagery is transformed through reference and repetition and rewriting. Mm. And he did a whole book on the Grimm's called The Owl, the Raven, and the Dove. Maybe I should tell you the subtitles so that you appreciate how cool it is. And this is also on the on the reading list. Um, the Owl, the Raven, and the Dove, the religious meaning of the Grimm's magic mm. fairy tales. Are we ready? You did read enough in the end. So now you see what I sent you. It's like yes, this chapter yes. on Snow White is by one of the like leading, leading medieval scholars on layers of storytelling. And he's trying to say, look, they knew were killed us. They knew this enlightened version. They're going to rewrite it so that Snow White now has a, a deeper significance than the enlightenment. Oh, yeah, it's all trickery. Mm -hmm. As you was just, as you were describing that, it was. Uh, I'm recalling Moses compiling the the Genesis story as a kind of uh, yeah. 
a, the similar thing to kind of establish the pattern of uh, origin, but also all of the imagery there, because he focused a lot on inserting uh, particular scenes with animals and things in there uh, to anchor parts of the story. So yeah, you said the, you said you said ravens, and mm -hmm. I thought. Uh, yeah, a few things came to mind. So he does. So so I had that. I'm 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 pulling stuff, and it's actually how it's actually working. And guys, we're running late, but you know, you can watch this on on recording. That um, and you can pause and consider how much wisdom we are imparting to you in such a compressed form. The boomerang's still out, um, and we will keep reminding you that the boomerang's still out. And I threw it out. Mm -hmm two hours ago and it will come back <laughs> i promise you it's spinning somewhere it's, over it's, the Pacific. It's, <laughs> you know flat or globe world that boomerang is way far out okay um mm -hmm. we saw what Bettelheim did with that hunter mm. murphy is way more interesting so Bettelheim just says oh it's you know father figure in competition with this the stepmother Blah blah blah. The Freudian version. The Freudian version, right? So, in the um, in if you actually read Murphy, you realize that that whole huntsman thing is grim, and not in a grim mm. way, right? So. Wilhelm then introduces an incident that is not at all in the manuscript. When the queen calls the huntsman to take Snow White out into the woods and kill her, the story verges off in the direction of classical mythology. When Yocasta, the queen, the mother of Oedipus, wanted to get rid of her child, she too ordered one of her herdsmen to take the infant out into the wilderness and to abandon him on a wild mountainside to be devoured by the wild animals. So it has nothing to do with daughters. It's Oedipus, right? But so Yocasta is sending Oedipus out. The herdsman, however, took pity on the helpless young child and spared him. The herdsman returns to her and says nothing to the queen about letting the baby go free. First layer. Mm. Wilhelm Grimm then interweaves another ancient myth with this one. There is no substitution of an animal for the baby in the Oedipus myth. This brief allusion to the Oedipus story is therefore deftly interwoven with the biblical story of Abraham, in which an animal is substituted by the parent for the child who is spared. In Genesis 22, Abraham lowers his knife and does not kill his son Isaac on the altar, but lets his son go free and substitutes a wild ram caught in a nearby thicket for the child. Again, Bettelheim claims that it's about mothers and daughters, right? But this is the Abraham and Isaac mm. story, so she's spared. The herdsman in Snow White kills a nearby young wild boar in order to bring back its lungs and liver. Lunga and labor, the alliteration helps make the act seem northern and medieval. To Snow White's mother, the queen. He's not done yet. Wilhelm then. This is cool. I'm enjoying this a lot. It's funny. It's so ironic. Keep going. It's art, right? <laughs> it's like Grimm did this on purpose, and it's the overlaying yeah. and interlaying of all these stories. Wilhelm then completes the incident by giving it a Germanic twist. At the end, in the myth of Sigurd, Siegfried, the dragon slayer, the same request is made by the treacherous Regen, who shows Sigurd how to kill the dragon by digging a camouflaged pit in the earth and striking up from below. Regen hopes, however, that the venomous blood will then pour into the pit and destroy the hero and the treasure will be his. 
Um, this is the passage in Pedro Colum's retelling. Okay, and it's long, right? Um, uh, Sigurd takes the heart out and roasts it. Um, uh, takes a heart from the dragon and roasts it. Okay. When the equally cunning mm -hmm. queen sees the cut out lungs and liver provided by the hunter, she has them roasted triumphantly as if she were incorporating Snow White's magic beauty into herself, just as Reagan wished to incorporate into himself the magic wisdom of the serpent, the dragon. What the stepmother eats, yeah. however, is the life of a pig. Hmm. Okay, so whatever <laughs> Metalheim did with that, right? Grim, hmm. it, it's like it's like taking a exquisitely crafted stained glass window with layers and layers of imagery and references to the classical tradition, the Germanic tradition, and the biblical tradition, and claiming yeah. that it's nothing but you know puberty. I mean, it may be puberty, yeah. but uh, you know, it's like it's it's like. The, this kind of ham-fisted psychologizing of the 20th in the 20th century eradicates the level of art that actually went into the crafting of these stories mm. by the Grimm's, yeah. which are, whose um, are the version that we're using in all modern retellings of them. Yeah, it's like taking a cathedral and building an office, <laughs> an office building over the top of it, isn't it? <laughs> you just think, where, where's all the detail gone? It's, it's. <sighs> no, we don't need that. We just need this. Uh, it's almost making utility out of the story, and then not having the reference. That's why I was laughing because they've taken something that which is like pretty heavy with semitic references right we're talking about abraham and isaac i mean this is the foundational myth for the hebrew people this is it <laughs> and then like you know kind of like covering it up and having this um or or just you know that all of these other references and making it into a utility story yep far out so everybody keeps doing this to this is what it Okay, so the, no, but this makes sense now why these stories are used by people that want to create a utility culture and make people behave as though they are utilities instead of uh, people with souls and minds and spirituality and complexity, you know? They're, they're, it's a, it's a industrialization via, uh, utility fairy utility story mm -hmm. mm. I mean, but what's interesting is the Grimm's were actually doing this as Christian artists and 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 mm. and Bettelheim obviously completely dechristianizes them so they've set but they've set the precedent because it's like the influence of the it's it's like the influence of modernity on their retelling on their structuring on their creation right. and then what that what you can do with the, you know, another step further when you're so far away from the medieval by looking at the, the myths as Freud did, you're not even looking at the complexity of, of the ingredients in the, in the, in the fairy tale in the first place, because you're not reading it with all of these different dimensions. That's very, very interesting. Well, I mean, it, in effect, the Grimm's wrote work, great works of literature, 
in the 19th century with layers of resonance in them on purpose, which we can see them rewriting the stories that they collected and making them, you know, it's, it's like saying Dickens' Christmas Carol was, you know, an eternal story, mm. that, you know, has, I mean, yeah, the 19th century was a great era of storytelling and art and poetry and medievalism. But it was also... But you need to know their references right. in order to understand their retelling. So what we're doing is we're only referencing their retelling and we've completely, like as a civilization, completely... Uh, it's a complete amnesia of all of the references that they've used in their story. Right. We're not even getting right. them. We're missing them. We don't understand them. We don't see them. So we don't have any other way of interpreting the stories except for the... the uh, the proposed interpretation, you know, the proposed way mode of analysis, which is Freudian. Right. Well, however, if someone else wants to say it, it's a story about. Well, they've been they've uh, been dechristianized and talk about what the Nazis uh, did, right? Yes. They, they, com yes. they completely eradicated the sense of there being. I mean, so that you know, the, the Nazis wanted them as German folklore. It's therefore appropriate that I started with Indiana Jones and his reading of a fake manuscript yeah. with the Nazi, <laughs> right? And we descended into hell. And but that's like, that's why I was laughing, yeah. like appropriating those people, appropriating them as German folklore, and that's why I was chuckling because it's a Semitic, like this is you know, oh, yes. Semitic roots. Yes. You know, so like, how do you how do you take away these stories when they're anchored in the Christian mind, which is it's a Semitic mind. I mean, this is like it. I, I, I will say this. I will state this very plainly as a Coptic person to say yes, it's a Semitic world, uh, the Semitic psyche. So you've got but Christic Semitic psyche, and then you've got a bunch of crazy people that are trying to reformat a national mentality on a, a retelling, which. I mean, it's no. It's like I, my head can't handle this. There, it hurts to think about this. <laughs> Re recycling fairy imagery for this kind of machinery. Uh, it hurts. Well, I mean, it makes it, it does it makes sense of why they felt so fractured and 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 confusing in the post-World War II era. Yeah. Like, I can feel it in my head just thinking about that. It's a block. No wonder they're... The, the Rubik's Cube is broken. Completely. Completely. And then the psyche is broken because they can't return to their own... Uh, the, the, the roots of their own culture. All they have is this re repeat of a uh, um, uh, anti-fairy. Mm -hmm. They're stuck in it over and over and over and over again. Well, they so in the image I'm showing right now, there's nothing in the mirror. Right, they see nothing in the mirror. The mirror is horrified. Right, this is great yeah. Trina Shardheim in detail. It's like the mirror is going ah because mm. <laughs> their faces around it. It's like there's nothing in it. Because they're never actually, yeah. but it, one, I mean, and you can see this is my intense frustration 
forever as a medievalist, right? What's interesting is the ancient world is considered like cool and woo woo, right? And the medieval is a source for cool decorative motifs. I'm not sure, but the <laughs> when you say you're medievalist, it's oh, you're 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 one of those dark age people. Yes. <laughs> Yes, the age of light that the Enlightenment decided was, you know, going to, it was going to eradicate and restory as the period in which Albertus Magnus mm. gets the, the mom pregnant, right? We can't, we can't, mm. we can't possibly believe that, oh, those little men that live in the woods and take in travelers and wear hoods are the good guys. Um, Murphy does a nice job on this. It's like when the when the prince comes along and he's expecting to take you know take uh, uh, lodge for the night with the little men in the in the woods. Who are they? <laughs> Could it be? <clears throat> Say the word. Uh, monks. monks. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, the Grimms are kind of like sneaking stuff in yeah. because I think they're in the Lutheran context. I'm not sure. But I mean, this this is what's so funny. It's like, what's haunting the story world? That was the, that was the word I was thinking. We're haunted, haunted by, by it. it. Cannot see it. Cannot look in the mirror. I mean, so there's there's interesting. Okay, it's like all you see. This is a from a series. This is a Disney princess from a series on the Seven Deadly Sins. And here, Snow White is lust. Right, I think that's Snow White. I hope that I got the right one. <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. They're all all the Disney yeah. princesses are sins of some sort, right? And it's like all you see is you know Snow White. It's surrounded by little men and the and and sleeping in their beds, right? Um, <laughs> they live. They it's sleep funny. in a dormitory, and and, and they're in fact very good yeah. housekeepers. And she takes a little taste from each of their. <laughs> I don't know about the mining, right? That that's that's a little confusing, but it's like there's. There's so many ways they clearly are like, talk about like, what would, what would the English write about if they have no monks left, but they know that they stole all their yeah. property? Yeah. Awkward. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and they just grub around in the world, in the earth for gemstones and gold and stuff to, I don't know, decorate their churches. Right. So, so, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's interesting that, that, I, I'm pretty sure the Grimms were, were Lutheran. Somebody look it up for me. Uh, Grimms. I can't, I, well, I, I can't do it on my iPad because I've got my, I don't have my keyboard with me. Um, now that's interesting. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, there's, there's a lot of Germany, just like England goes through, the, I mean, well, England sort of more purely goes through the crisis because the Reformation just destroys everything. And the people mm. that are left as Catholics are, are resistant, but they, they don't have the physical institutions anymore. Um, Germany is, of course, A, not unified until the 19th century into Germany, and B, yeah. fractured into all of these different regions. So Bavaria is very Catholic, and I don't know, Saxony is very Lutheran, and it's all mixed up, and I don't know which region is which. Um, in the, mm -hmm. you know, f f for all of modernity, f Germany is literally schizophrenic, because A, it doesn't exist, and B... I noticed in the I noticed in the article that the first thing that jumped out at me is that it's described Germanese mm. plural, which which fits because that's what it is. It's not a it's not a unification, not a unified right. place. It's a bunch of side quests, all stuck together constantly, and even even to the point of like which which High German or Low German, Snavishen or Snavichen or Snavisen or what I mean, it's like that the the dialects mm. are not standardized 
um, until the 19th century as it was like, which ones counts as the national language. I'm a little bit riffing off the top of my head on this. I don't really know Germany that well in the modern period, but I know this. <laughs> it, I mean, that whatever they're doing in the 30s, it's new, right? Because Bismarck had only just done it <laughs> in the late 19th century mm. to create a, 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 a political entity of the German state. Okay. Mm. Oh, th no, this is having a lot of, like, um, it, there's a lot of things clicking now. Yeah. This makes sense. You don't have a unified... Uh, there's no unification religiously that's been fractured linguistically there's no unification right. politically there's no unification <laughs> fairy tales no unification so you're dealing with this cauldron of competing energy and desire for coherency but intensely mystical oh yeah the germans are so mystical I mean, that's in, in, then, in, in my in my normal day day job life. Mainly what I spend is reading you know, German mysticism. It's called Benedictine. <laughs> it's the monks. Yeah. Right. Or it's Hildegard, yeah, who is a, who is another of our great <laughs> models for um, for our, our drink alchemicus. Right. Her um, yeah. allegories of the soul and the city and the creation. The Germans are intensely mystical. All of what you're saying is true. And, and what they had in the 19th century, interesting, was the Grimm's fairy tales mm. to give them a sense of being German. But it's an incomplete story, which is why it brings us back to the beginning that there is only one story, ultimately, and that if we've smashed the gothic cathedral of the fairy tale and created this utilitarian office space which has given us something like a you know 19th century nationalism to make everything cohesive right. it's um practical right i mean it works so you know so called it works but it's not satisfying to the psyche it's not satisfying to the soul because uh it's not complete the references have been lost the mind still can't rest it's it's not able to fix on the the foundation of that fairy tale because it's lost its references and so it's not going to sit in a stable way i don't know if this is making sense but this is this uh kind of what this reminds me of is like a kind of um catalyst for fan f fan fiction frenzy mm. well i mean in some ways to... you could say the nazis are like the epitome of fan fiction frenzy in their invention of mythologies and I, i've seen things like pictures well one their color scheme but um things like parade parades yes. that they do with mythological invented mythological characters it's like this is it's like it's like this hijacking hijacking the desire right. for a true mythology and a true true uh procession and all of that kind of thing but in like the like in like the psychedelic just, yeah. drug version of nothing making sense yeah fear and loathing in berlin Berlin, yeah. <laughs> Horror. 
Yes, it is. Yeah. And so it's like, this is, so I have right mm-hmm. now, this is, I did find on Wikipedia, there's, you know, some 19th century uh, illustrations of the the story and the, the glass coffin seems to be a standard, right? This clear glass coffin, which is interesting. Um, there are some, um, this, this one, this looks sort of French to me, but um, you know, this, the, the witch queen and the, and Snow White. So um I think it's. I think it is fair to say that there is this the sexual tension and the envy is is real in the story, um, mm. but obviously one of the things that people have tended to do with all of these stories. I mean, they come out of the nineteenth century, and the nineteenth century is such a fractured time of the industrialization and the movement of people into the cities and the the loss. I mean, all of that. The Grimm's fed off of that feeling of loss, right? We've lost, we've lost, we've lost the old world. Yeah. We've lost the old world. My entire field, right? Medieval studies comes out of that moment, right? It's like this this feeling mm. of the world has changed, or you know, in England they're trying to recover the gothic because they threw out the church in the 16th century and they'll make new churches in the gothic style and parliament and and things like that but this 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 mm-hmm. fracturing of the whole world that took place after the french revolution after napoleon marches through the middle of the continent disrupts everything in germany all of that is it's like this this incredible fervent fervor of histories the lines of history being broken right so some of what some of what mm. goes on people try to pretend that i think i got my slides in the wrong order um there are historical reference to it so go through these pictures of mirrors and go to for example there's two towns and i won't remember which they are look them up on wikipedia that claim to have the historical snow white um one seems moderately credible as like there was a woman who had a child and you know da 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 it was difficult marriage stuff and so forth. That's what I'm showing now. The other one was completely made up by like a guy who said, "Oh yeah, it could be us because we have a mine nearby and there were dwarves." <laughs> and, and that that desire to be in the story, right, is saying our town. Mm is the source of that story. And so they're, they're taking something that's very clearly, if we do the literary analysis invented by the Grimm's in the 19th century as a structure mm-hmm. and saying that's ours, that was our, it's like, you know, saying that the, the real events of this mm-hmm. fairy story happened in our town, which then gives your town more reality because it fits with the fairy story. It, it's a sort of fascinating mm-hmm. problem, right? So we go back to the, the mirrors upon mirrors um, some of the meditation has also been on like, why is there a mirror in the story? How, it, and, and I, I'll go back to the big mirror that she has in the picture. Any, well, no, go back to the mirror, go back to the mirror. We're going back to the mirror. Any mirror as big as the ones that we usually imagine having cannot exist until the 17th century because there's hmm. no technology for making large plate glass mirrors until the Venetians come up with it in the, 17th century and Louis the 14th the reason he makes the hall of mirrors at Versailles is because it's like basically covering the whole room in gold it's <laughs> or or computer mm. boards or something right it's it's it, the, the the hall of mirrors yeah. at Versailles is like the 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 modern villains version of giant tech screens or something right I don't know it's does that yeah. make sense yeah no it makes perfect sense it's like Times Square in Versailles yes Versailles. yes yeah, 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 like you've had yeah. nothing but moving billboards, right? That was the Hall of Mirrors. So these big yep. mirrors 
you know, if, if the story depends on having that kind of mirror, it's a completely modern story. Now, some of the, the, mm. the, you know, you could say, well, no, you know, there are mirrors before that. Now I'm going to the mirrors. Um, we know from the 15th century, there's good enough mirrors technically to actually have proper reflections in them. Prior to that, mirrors are not that great, right? And, and, and like high medieval mm. mirrors, they're, they're little compact things, size or like little hand things. Um, the, the glass technology, again, it's the tech, the glass technology is not good enough mm. and the silver backing and things like that until the 15th century. And therefore there's whole schools of arguments saying, oh yes, from the 15th century, you start having the sense of the self, <laughs> the selfie, um, because the mirrors, <laughs> yeah, for, the mirrors from the 15th century start being clear enough that you could look in them and actually see something mm. that looked like yourself. Um, this one's showing a an artist using her mirror to do a self-portrait so a selfie <laughs> you can see where i was on the internet this afternoon um but but th there's also these famous pictures by things like van eyck this is the arnolfini wedding where the mirror again it's like putting this high high tech thing in the picture the mirror is a con mm -hmm. convex yeah one of those bulby ones right that shows the whole room so mm -hmm. you know like what kind of mirror the queen is looking in to get the truth is a kind of interesting tech question. Mm, it is. Medium problem. It's a total medium problem. If, if she's using one of the old, like if mm. she's using an ancient mirror that were made just of, of polished metal, that's, we're still mm. recording. Um, we are... Like the, Egypt, like the Egyptian style that they used to redirect light beams around rooms yeah. for lighting. Yeah. Yeah. But those the, the the old style mirrors. What when Paul says through a glass darkly, he means mirrors aren't that great. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see in them clearly. Yeah, all you see in in a in a first century mirror is a you know metallic something. Yeah, it's like looking at yourself in a car car side. So he could he he couldn't have written that phrase if it no because now. now we see mirrors there are, there are no dark glasses <laughs> we got high definition lg screens he would write it up to different it would be darkly TV. now it would be you know mirror imaged yeah. or deceptively or pixelated or something mm. like that the darkly in his mirror is because those ancient mirrors are technically not that crisp whereas the what we think mm -hmm. of as a mirror now, these large, large rolled glass, silver backed stuff, that's a high tech of the 17th century. Well, that changes my reading of the, the, the evil mother staring at the, the mirror. Uh, it's kind of meta. It's like, uh, modernity trying to stare at fairy stories for meaning and then yes not having the clarity yeah yeah, yeah. isn't it mm -hmm. <laughs> so germany's staring at this shit mirror because it's completely detached itself from christic reality through all of these side quests and fan fiction insanities mm -hmm. staring 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 and never seeing Anything but it's a really. it's a modern image. Yes, yeah. yes, but it's it's still not clear if you if you're not referencing the Gothic and the medieval 
uh, and you're only referencing the utility of the office building that's been constructed in its place. That's the glass darkly, the fairy story. The fairy story itself is the glass darkly. Yeah. Yeah. Obsessive fixation on it because you know that there is something there that should be there, but you can't see it. Mm. So the Grimm's actually did know what they were doing. And here's an image from their first edition or a Snevichen. And here she is in her glass coffin with the inscription. There's one dwarf sitting next to her and there are three birds. Hey. Which are the birds that Murphy used to title his book. The owl, the raven, and the dove. And the dove. And they watch over Snow White when she's in her in her in her glass casket. Who comes to in the stand and watch and see if this very open appeal of a glass casket on a mountain is answered? The answer, I think, it is, I think, one of Wilhelm Grimm's finest. And in it, he reveals in slightly veiled form the heart of the magic of his fairy tales. Hmm. And the animals came too and cried over Snow White, first an owl, then a raven, last a little dove. Und die Tiere kamen auch und beweinten Sneewitschen, erst eine Eule, Nature, which always recognized her as one of her own, now cries over her loss. Only those who did not love do not mourn. Cinderella knew that. Even pets and animals know that. But of all the animals of the forest, Disney will have many more. Why these three? For millennia, the three religions have accompanied the good human being with hope for rescue for as far as they can go up to the grave. The classical, the Germanic, and the Christian religions can now only mourn, keep watch over the body as they always have done, and hope. Where do these spirits of hope come from? Where in the forest is their real place of origin? Their colors tell much. The owl is reddish brown, red. The raven is black. The dove is white. <laughs> they are the colors of Snow White's soul, her person itself. And it is from the soul of the good person that religion's spirit originates, from its red loving warmth, from its white loyal innocence, from its humbling black and earth-like mortality. The three birds are the soul of mankind, keeping watch over the body to see if it can come to life again, to see if there is a resurrection of the body and life everlasting, to see if death is asleep. And they keep their long vigil over her, the owl, as they keep their long vigil over her, the owl dreams of her rescue by some provident accident, the raven dreams of her rescue by a tree, and the dove dreams that one day the king's son will come for her. That's so sad. Oh no, it's beautiful. It's not sad at all, because the king's son does come. <laughs> and finds her in a glass coffin welcomes her back into life hmm. now what's funny is i never got this reading just the grim version i i i my german is not what it should be given how much i wanted it but i have read goethe's version in german and for some reason it leapt out at me and that 
it's all she's obviously in a reliquary she's obviously mm. asleep waiting for the resurrection and what murphy mm. can see and what i here's a bavaria is full of these saints right and i, I was sort of picking which one i'm going to show you right the jill the jeweled saints of bavaria the catacomb saints and stuff these a glass coffin is clearly a reliquary in in grim they put it on a mountain right but in normal life oh here's bernadette at lourdes they are in churches um and that snow white is surrounded by the owl the raven and the dove the classical the germanic and the christian i mean one you see that murphy was very practiced in being able to see these kinds of things between the raven at the baptism and the dove right mm -hmm. he sees the this is different from just saying all stories teach the same thing because they don't it's showing that the truth to which they point is it in in this mm. fairy story world actually the truth which is the truth of the resurrection so that the king's son comes and when he looks in the glass casket and sees her he realizes why he came into the woods he cannot live without her faith hope and love write the ending the prince is surely the christ figure of wilhelm's many readings in the new testament on the resurrection christ is the friend of the germanic religious dwarfs and he sees the beauty of the dead snow white wilhelm seems almost to be thinking of saint paul's famous equation of death with sleep as the prince asks if he can take her with him and he quotes from and murphy quotes from thessalonians um and then they, they try to carry the casket away and they trip on a tree branch so the raven is satisfied it seems to be an accident so the owl is satisfied um but um the dove um understands that it's the prince who came and raised her back to life and trina shart hyman to her enormous credit in her representation gets that this is a christian story because in her opening scene i had her the earlier picture with the queen looking at the three drops of blood which murphy also points out is from parsifal right parsifal is um stunned into sort of meditation on his love by three drops of blood on the snow wilhelm grimm is very very educated in stories and he's putting them all into his story which is exactly what we're doing with ours um mm -hmm. and doing it on purpose to pull out all of those resonances that are constantly there but it's it's of it's not just of oh the numbers of times that we've told a story about a woman who's jealous of her daughter right it's it's this mm. this beautiful representation of the hope of our faith and in i'm showing now the the, the facing page of the picture in trina shard hyman's picture where the woman's looking the mother's looking out of the window into the snow in fact what she's also looking at is is a representation of our lady and um her son in a triptych mm. right and that that kind of image this religious image is of course what the reformation destroyed but which is there at the heart of all of these stories that they it's the image that is the reality of our hope and our joy and that grim put this into the stories and nobody sees it now they just go with Bettelheim and say it's freudian mm. is a destruction up there with um the you know the destruction of germany's medieval treasures by other means mm. and so that's why we can't see that what snow white actually is is the ark and Mary, I mean, this, 
that she's sleeping, waiting the resurrection, but we have her in this, this, uh, things that show up across the, Mary, the Ark of the Covenant, right? Catholics also view Mary as the New Ar mm -hmm. Testament Ark of the Covenant. The T Old Testament Ark of the Covenant contained three items, the Word of God, the manna from heaven, and the rod of Aaron. Um, but she's shown here, it's like, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I did it. I promised that boomerang would come back. <laughs> <laughs> ah, she's done it. Of course, it's the Ark, right? It's yeah. like you're always in this story because it's always going to yeah. come back to the revelation of God's entering into our story and the, you know, the artist that works with us and makes with mm -hmm. us and is in joy with us and um, fights the dragon for us, right? Here's the Lord fighting the mm -hmm. Leviathan. And therefore, and this is of Hildegard's imagery, that great fairy story that we're in of the dragon slayer is that of creation and redemption through the incarnation. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking as you're describing this, you know, the, uh, like that kind of, uh, iconoclasm of the story, forgetting what the, the glass case is, forgetting that it's the arc, the reformation set the, set the, set the wheels in motion for this kind of, um, amnesia of European people to forget the Ark entirely. Mary as Ark, St. Mary, the Virgin as, as the Ark of God. So it's, it's kind of mind blowing that really, as you're describing this, I'm thinking it, this is, this is Christendom broken, Christendom with a broken heart trying to replace her role in European reality. It's an irreplaceable, missing uh, Uh, it's not even that it's not even a totem it's it's the the guiding piece of all our mythology the reality of the story that we're in is that arc that's been blasted by dragons mm. as indeed yeah. Notre Dame was in 2019 Mm. Still more believable than the official story that it was yeah. <laughs> It's Notre Dame. It's the no. Ark. Yeah. It's it's like the the the, the uh, and uh, you know everybody. What was interesting in 2019 when the cathedral caught fire, and the, the 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 refusal of people, even within the church, to say the reason this building mattered was because it was dedicated to Our Lady. I, I did a few pieces on this. <laughs> Why weren't anybody talking oh. about this? It's like Our Lady is the Ark. This Notre Dame is the, the you know, the, the, the place of praise for her. And people were talking about it, you know, the, the sort of material beauty of the thing, right? It's like, oh, we need it. It belongs to the world. It's like, yes, because it's Our Lady, the Ark. And we mm. are incapable of seeing what that means 
and so we get nothing but these like i i like that image that you have of you know that the, the actual cathedral has been placed with an uh, office block or something so that mm. we don't we, we can't see snow white in the casket as an image of you know the dormition and 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 the hope for resurrection the king's son we I mean, think about the king what 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 is it that happens when mary rises again after her her falling asleep the dormition in the orthodox mm -hmm. tradition oh right the king's son comes and takes her to heaven with him gee yep. that must be a little hard to figure out <laughs> but it is if you don't know those stories the actual true true you know christian christian layering of stories and what we're you mm -hmm. know we've we've said this many times we hope that that's what we're going to be able to do with Draco Chimicus is retell this great story of dragon slaying in a way in which the full resonances of its significance capture people's attention because we do actually have to keep retelling the stories because otherwise people don't see how they're in them but the whole point is always to yes. be seen you're in this story this is this is our story this is and this of course to catch that boomerang is in fact what Tolkien said story fairy stories were. The peculiar joy in the successful fantasy can thus be explained as the sudden glimpse of the underlying reality or truth. And what is that reality or truth, Professor Tolkien? I would venture to say that approaching the Christian story from this direction, it has long been my feeling, a joyous feeling, that God redeemed the corrupt making creatures, men, in a way fitting to this aspect as to others of their strange nature. The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, peculiarly artistic, beautiful, and moving, mythical in their perfect self-contained significance, and among the marvels is the greatest and most complete conceivable eucatastrophe. But this story has entered history and the primary world. The desire and aspiration of sub-creation has been raised to the fulfillment of creation. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. It has preeminently the inner consistency of reality. There is no tale ever told that men would rather find was true, and none which so many skeptical men have accepted mm -hmm. as true on its own merits. For the art of it has the supremely convincing tone of primary art that is of creation. To reject it leads either to sadness or to wrath. Mm. I mean, it's interesting that Tater in her excerpting of oh, what did Tolkien say about storytellers, you can completely miss the fact that what Tolkien said was the gospel is the story, to, is the fairy story. That's it. We mm. are in it. This one. The fairy story, the fairy story, the fairy story. And he, he goes on at that same passage to say, um, sorry, it's the joy, it's the blah, 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 blah. Um, This story is supreme and it is true. Art has been verified. God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves. Legend and history have met and fused. It's, it's, the gospel is the fairy story and all, I mean, Grimm, what's interesting is like Grimm is doing that too. The Grimm's are rewriting the stories that they have to fit within the frame of the story. And so if mm. we find them and respond to them now, all of these stories that the Grimm's purposefully rewrote to make more beautiful, they're making them more beautiful in a particular frame. 
Yeah, they cost they're they're costing their uh their their gems and their their jewels in a particular <laughs> a particular kind of wax impression. To make a very beautiful yeah. reliquary. <laughs> yeah. From which yeah. we will rise again. It's magnificent. You've left me speechless. <laughs> Caught that boomerang. <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's to think, I mean, what's funny is we say, are we sad that people can't see this in the stories that you mm. know, they're, they're wanting them to be sort of floating out there in in an ether of, in a, not ether, a, a soup of stories that the, the sort of quintessential human truths of sexual dynamics, which are true, which we should deal with in stories, um, but not recognizing that the reason, I mean, so I say, why do these stories have such power over this? Well, possibly mm -hmm. because they participate in the story that's true. Yes. <laughs> this is why, it, it's it why Tolkien it, stories it do. The Lord of the Rings does because it's Christian too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't resonate unless it's anchored in the truth. Right. Mm. And and, yeah. and what's wonderful, so in our story, we have the dragon looking at himself in the crystal, right? Which is like, you realize all of this mirroring problem is, is constant, right? Are you able to look at Christ? Or are you looking mm. at yourself and some kind of reflection the idolatry is is constantly so snow white the mm -hmm. the stepmother's mirror is obviously idolatrous of herself but that is what satan does right he's always wanting to look at himself talk about himself be proud of himself that's the point pride right and in, in, in um medieval representations mm -hmm. of like vanity and such you'll be holding a mirror and it's like you're you're always looking more at yourself than at christ mm. It's modernity. It's modernity. Hmm. It's a hole of mirrors. Which brings <laughs> us very nicely back to how Terry Pratt, how wet Granny Weatherwax solves it. <laughs> that she's able, she's she's trapped in the mirrors that Lily has made, and she's able to know who she is. Now Pratchett is not writing as a Christian, so there's you know you can have those layers there, but the the knowledge of the reality of the truth, so that you're not caught in these mirror reflections, is also mm -hmm. obviously one of the things we've been working with in 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 the arc. Yes. Right? It's like you're you're on the surface of all of these stories, but you're in the arc. We're hoping to be able to you know see ourselves clearly, who we yes. are. Mm. Yeah, and have a have a reconnection with the with the threads, all of the threads that went into the the the, the fairy story that we're living. Not ignoring any of them anymore. <laughs> Make fairy stories gospel again. Yep. 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 
<laughs> so we hope we hope now it makes a little more sense although you know it's like it's a it's a, it's a long throw on the boomerang on on this episode but um it matters a lot these stories matter immensely mm-hmm. because they carry our heart yes Whew. okay shall we let them go now okay. yes <laughs> please they need to compl- you, they need to contemplate the glass coffin they do <laughs> yeah. they do and 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 they need to check out our website at dragoncommonroom.com and if they watch this before mm-hmm. the morning of june 20th june 19th is the last full day please join this join us in the arc and on the stream and in the story it's a it's a it's a happy one it has a happy ending we promise <laughs> <laughs> okay hi we'll let you go now good night bye